Radio Universe. It's a new day. Yes, it is. I am Vaughn Johnson. You got me mad now. You know, you got a bicycle. Feeling good. For all the skeptics and all the people have a little bit of... Let me do this again. Oh, it's live, pal. Sorry. We ride the bicycle in the arena. With my man, man, Pots and Pants, Nick Bacone. That's me. I don't know where the kid is that was riding it, but he ain't on it when they brought it to the ring. Smile at you and kick your face off. I don't know that one's up. But I don't like it when things are going my way. Don't you dare be sour! Woo! Woo! He don't know nothing else. <laughs> you know that wrestling, like, you know that wrestling bro. <laughs> give me a hell yeah! I said give me a hell yeah! What is up ladies and gentlemen out there in Internet Miami? Welcome to episode 247 of the Straight Shooters. Available wherever podcasts are available. My name is Vaughn Johnson. I'm joined as always by my main man, Pots and Pans, Nick McCone of Fully Voice and Fully Influencer. And we got yet another banger of a show ahead of us tonight. We're going to talk about uh, some current events, but mostly we're going to spend most of our show on episode 247. Going into a deep dive. We're back. The deep dives are back. And this week, we're talking about... Since it is August, since SummerSlam is right around the corner, we're going to rewind it back, all the way back to 1990. For SummerSlam 1990, which took place right here in the great city of Philadelphia at the old Spectrum. So we're going to deep dive into the whole show. I took lots and lots of notes. I'm looking at the Word document here. I got got over a thousand words worth of notes here. So we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, for SummerSlam 1990, and like I said, we're going to talk about uh, a, a, one small piece of current events uh, in the world of professional wrestling. But before we get into all of that, I got to do my weekly check on my guy, my main man, Pots and Pants, Nick Pacone. How you doing tonight, my good brother? I am flyered up, man. We got the Flyers tonight opening the playoffs against the Canadians, so. I'm all flyered up. We got the Sixers in action right now. The Phillies about to come on. Um, I, I don't even know why I mentioned the Phillies, but uh, I also took a lot of notes. Uh, you know that you, I, I guess you use your computer to take notes, huh? I don't know why I don't yeah. think. I don't know why I don't think about doing that. I handwrite them like an idiot. Well, um, it's not as easy as it seems. I mean, yeah, I, I don't use my hand to write, which I've done recently, and it, my hand hurts like immediately, yeah. after, like one paragraph, but. <laughs> Uh, trying to watch and then take notes, type on a Word document at the same time. You know, I'm cycling through Windows, and I might mm-hmm. miss something. Uh, so right. if I were to write it down, I can kind of, like, look up, look back at the same time. But on my computer, you know, obviously it's still easier, so I'm probably going to stick with that because I don't want my hands to be hurting after yeah. taking notes about SummerSlam 1990. Yeah, and I took a lot of notes, too, a lot more than I used that I did when we went over the WrestleMania Rage Party and... Uh, the beach brawl only because this was almost a three-hour show, so clearly there were going to be more notes and uh, a lot of Philly-centric stuff going on. So I, I had to make note of it. A lot of things that I may not have caught on to, you know, watching it before, uh, even when I was a kid. So I got a lot of stuff. One, two, three, four, five, six pages, but not—they're like small pages. They're you know, like notebook pages, not you know the eleven by eights or you know whatever we're used to with the regular like notebooks. A, like a notepad. But, Right, um, I a little smaller pad. than that. A little, little smaller than that, but okay, okay. Uh, I think 
I think pocket make, ones. I used to have one of those. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, actually I used it to plan our shows out back when we started in the studio. I would write down notes and everything, and I, I don't remember if I would bring that bring it to the studio before I maybe it was before I started doing the rundown or whatever and making you mess up the date and stuff like that. But thank you, thank <laughs> a nice you. callback. That. <laughs> yeah, that's in the archives when I. Uh, like you said, Nick would make a rundown, like a sheet of what we we're going to talk about. And at the top of that rundown would be the date. And me, being like Ron Burgundy, I would just read it. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever's on that sheet of paper, I was reading it. So I would just pretty much go on, I'm Vaughn Johnson? And that <laughs> one time, I said the completely wrong date because Nick said the wrong date. It was, well, we were in August already or September? We were in September, but I forgot to change the date from August. Right. Which is so usually said, the first thing I changed in that document. I would make a copy and just change it. The formatting would be the same, but not that week. Not that time. <laughs> not that time. But um, before we get into our SummerSlam 1990 discussion, let's talk about 2020 a little bit. 30 years in the future, right? Uh, WWE heading into SummerSlam this year. It's going to be the most unique SummerSlam of all time because of the pandemic and a lot of, you know, current events going around. And this this whole year has been just wild, right? From a pandemic standpoint and a social justice standpoint, it's been a lot going on. We're also in an election year uh, for the president. It's just it's just wild. OK, uh, but WWE has taken upon themselves to take advantage of that somehow by. And we said this, talked about this last week. We talked about retribution last week. And I was like, WWE, please don't do what I think you're going to do. And that's makes pretty much create a anarchist group that kind of resembles and kind of, you know, kind of have that art imitating life type of vibe to it that resembles all of the things that we've seen over the last couple of months, still to this day, mind you, with uh, protests and or riots. And lo and behold, Vince McMahon, whose wife and himself as well has been uh, very tied to Donald Trump and the Republican Party over the years uh, and probably side with him on a lot of his politics, including, you know, blaming Antifa for everything that's going on with these protests and yada, yada, yada. And on Fox, the Fox network, which is typically known as a right wing network. Right, at least you know, Fox News is. Yep. Um, they're doing this angle, and on one end, it's offensive because of what's going on right now, and this in these days and times. So, it's if more people were paying attention to wrestling, uh, I think there would be a national outrage about this. But you know, like I've said before numerous times, wrestling ain't that hot right now, so <laughs> it ain't getting national attention because nobody's not that many people are paying attention outside of wrestling fans uh but even if you strip away the you know the social the potential social commentary wwe is trying to make and all the things that have actually happened in real life in our society here in the united states and honestly around the world with a lot of these protests if you just look at it just strictly from a wrestling angle so from a from a political current events angle it's trash from a wrestling angle, strictly wrestling, it's also still trash. <laughs> like, 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 just, just 
just from a pure wrestling standpoint, it looks like a bunch of teenagers are trying to recreate the Nexus angle from 10 years ago. It looks so bad. It's so poorly done. It's not, nobody's going like, oh man, this is so crazy. Like, no one's doing that. It's awful. They take over SmackDown, chainsaw the ropes, spray paint stuff, blah, 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 ordinary run-of-the-course stuff like we've actually seen before, again, with the Nexus. They did it much better, mainly because it was the first time we had to see something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come to SmackDown, take over the show. No one stops them. Uh, all those wrestlers is back there defending their brand. Would come, you know, When Survivor Series rolls around and it's about brand supremacy, the locker room empties out whenever the opposing brand invades the show. Let Raw come on a show and invade like that. The SmackDown locker room is just emptying out, right? <laughs> but when a group of maxed people with weapons come in, all oh, they got to stick some bats. I'm sure, you know, they got weapons, obviously, so that's a little more dangerous. But stick some bats, and they were nothing but like 5'10". They're no taller than me and Nick. <laughs> yeah. no, nobody comes out. They don't have Raw shirts on, so the, the, the SmackDown locker room is probably like, oh, who are these guys? They're definitely not with Raw or, or, or NXT, so whatever. Let them go. <laughs> Let them do what they want. <laughs> then they come on Raw. Raw just moves on like nothing happens. You know? Oh, we didn't just have an entire mass group take over the performance center. The same place we're having Raw two days later, three days later. It's all fixed up and nice. There's no extra security around. There's no like, hey, we know this group is here, but we're taking extra precautions. None of that. It's just like, hum da dum da dum, here right. we are, back at Raw. <laughs> And it's like, what the hell? And then they come and destroy stuff again. Throw a cinder block through glass. And then, like you pointed out on Twitter, threw a second one through the window <laughs> the door for no reason. Like, what? <laughs> that what was the nothing. point? Like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's shot poorly because WWE yeah. loves the camera cuts. They love the shaky cams. It's executed uh, and, poorly. And the chanting, like the screaming. They're, it's so bad. It, it's so bad. It's, like, so it's bad. shot par- poorly, like you said. And then the camera just like goes to them and they're like, yeah, like, oh my God, like, it's not even close to the Nexus. And people might point out the NWO did that stuff, but not really. They didn't like trash an entire set or ring. Uh, the only time they did that was really when they tried to take over Nitro and did that stuff. But it was like, first of all, it took like a half hour for them to do all that. Second of all, uh, you know, we, we they weren't, like, taking over in a way that the Nexus was. Like, everyone was kind of afraid of the Nexus because it didn't matter who you were, they would go through, through you. It wasn't like Nexus versus WWF. It was Nexus versus everyone. So, you know, that, you know, you, you paint that picture of earlier of Nexus. Like, we haven't seen it since Nexus. And I don't know what they're thinking right now if they're like, oh, this will be as, just as good as Nexus was, but not even close. And the problem with the Nexus was that, like, after like a month, they started to bury it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They came out, I think they came out like in June and July. And by August and by SummerSlam, it was dead because they had John Cena beat up everybody. (laughs) Like, like, okay, well, that's the end of that. And by WrestleMania in 2011, not even a year later, CM Punk is is, is running the group. (laughs) Like, the group is unrecognizable. Like, it's nothing. Like, it took them eight months to dismantle, to build it up and dismantle it. And it only took them, like, two months to build it up. And a systematic dismantling over the course of the next six or seven months, including, like I said, CM Punk losing to Randy Orton at WrestleMania 
as the leader of Nexus. It was just like yeah. And, uh, and do you remember what, the spinoff group? Oh, the core with the two cores. R's. <laughs> two How R's. can I forget? Uh, uh, Wade Wade Barrett, right? Yeah. Uh, Heath Slater. Right. Uh, was Ezekiel Jackson in that? Uh, see, I don't remember. I just remember Heath and Barrett off the top of my head, but um, yeah, I don't trash. Know. I don't know if Ryback, you know, went over there or whatever, but he wasn't Ryback at that time. But Skip Sheffield, yeah, yeah, it was. That's it. Not good. <laughs> That's it. Why? And here we are with another oddly named group. You know, not Nexus or you know why were they the Nexus? Don't know. Uh, you know, they never explained the name behind. It, I don't think. Uh, the chord just also bizarre, especially especially with two R's. Like what the hell? Um. And now here we are, Retribution. And you know what? That's a good point you make about the name. I think maybe they were just trying to go with something close to NXT because they they all came from NXT, and they're like, "What can we kind of what kind of similar to that?" And you know, they came up with Nexus, which is a real word, but I, I thought it was a cool name. I just I didn't know uh, what it meant. <laughs> I don't know what it means. Not that great. <laughs> it's just a that's a weird, that's a funny word WWE wanted to use. But Retribution. Not off to a great start, man, for multiple reasons on so many levels. It's, bad. it's just it's trash. Bad. It's really bad, WWE. And it just feels like another thing you're doing out of desperation. Let's just yeah. do that. For one, there's inconsistencies in how they attack. Like, they attacked everybody on SmackDown, right? Including the cameraman. <laughs> yeah. But there's a cameraman right next to them when they threw that cinder block through the window or through the door. Did they attack that cameraman? <laughs> we don't know. We, we I don't, don't think know. so. It's like what the he- like what the hell, man? Like it's bad, bro. And I understand it could be maybe it could be salvaged. I don't know. It depends on who's actually in this group. Mm-hmm. For right now, it looks like everybody's like five seven and, <laughs> and can't fight. <laughs> like that's what it looks like right now. And I ain't gonna gonna get short people, obviously. Uh, I'm a big fan of Rey Mysterio, big fan of Daniel Bryan. Those guys are like five nine, but I can see their faces and they're charismatic and they're over. Well, I can't see Rey Mysterio's face. I take that back. He's wearing a mask too. <laughs> But he does a lot of cool moves, and he's very charismatic, you know, and easily you get easily easily get sympathy on him. Um, but these guys, who the hell? I'm not. And also, Ray Mysterio is a good guy, by the way. These guys are supposed to be intimidating and tough and bad guys. Who the hell? What? <laughs> WWE trash. Yeah. And I know some people out there are like, oh, well, give it a chance to see it through. It's like, no, I mean, I've done that so many times, and I've been burnt so many times on WWE. I used to be one of those people to be like, oh, you know. We can't judge it before we fully see it. You know, it just happened. It's day one. We got to see what happens. Blah, 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 blah. Giving WWE the benefit of the doubt. They don't deserve it anymore. <laughs> so, no, I'm calling it what it is because this is probably what it's going to be in six weeks anyway. It's trash now. It's going to be trash in six weeks. That's it. You know, so here's what I hope is going on. I hope that. When they came up with this idea, they're like, "Let's ask our talent, you know, what, what they think we should do," because they, you know, they're very social, pro-social justice, and everything like that. A lot of the talent is, at least I should say. So let's get their input, and then let's go for it. And I want to believe that the talent was like, "This is so bad that we'll just make them tell them that this is really good," and then they run with it and just like kind of embarrass them into oblivion. Like I, I would rather that be the whole issue at this point because I don't know, man. 
How hilarious would that be if the talent's just like, yeah, yeah, this is this is real good. Yeah, make, make him throw that second center block through the window too. That's not there. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's good. Like, I'm the just only, imagining in my head those are the conversations going on. The only thing that could remotely salvage this in my mind, and I'm just like, this is a pie in the sky idea because knowing WWE, this is not going to happen. <laughs> Unless these guys and gals are actually supposed to be rebelling and trying to gain retribution against like a Vince McMahon for holding, you know, for producing a terrible product. Like if that's the story, <laughs> like you've run WWE into the ground, it, the shows are bad, the ratings are falling, and we're going to rebel against this whole machine until things change around here. Like they're trying to rebel for the better, so to speak. And they are the good guys in that story. <laughs> And Vince McMahon is the bad guy is the bad person in that story, it could possibly be salvaged. But I don't have any faith in WWE to do that. I have I wholeheartedly believe that WWE is gonna make these guys and gals the villains in whatever story they're trying to tell. And that'll be the end of it. And they'll get squashed by, you know, somebody at some point and then it'll disband and by WrestleMania next year we will forget all about it. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't it would not surprise me if it's all dropped by SummerSlam or after SummerSlam. That's how. Which is like that's how ten it's days getting away. Torched. It's getting torched everywhere, and I could just imagine them being like, you know what? Let's just drop it. It's bad. That's bad. Uh, Chris Jericho doing shows at Sturgis is bad. Oh, what yeah, are you doing, Chris Jericho? Uh, um, that's bad. What else is bad? Uh, uh, Ryan Satin, no, no disrespect to Ryan Satin. I like Ryan Satin. Uh, he's a hustler. Shout out to his hustle. I'm not knocking his hustle, but he put out a tweet that said uh, the Fiend is one of the best characters in WWE today. And I respectfully disagree with his opinion because I don't think there's anything that great about the Fiend and the character. Uh, and I've been on that train since day one. Uh, <laughs> it's just Bray Wyatt, Bray Wyatt with a mask, and I think people are just so desperate for something creative that. They'll take anything at this point, and it'll be the fiend, which is okay, but it ain't great. But again, no knock, no, this is not personal, Ryan Sadden. I'm not knocking you, your wrestling knowledge. I just disagree with your opinion about him being one of the best characters. And I guess maybe by default he is, because how many other good characters exist in WWE Ooh. right now? <laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe he is actually. Maybe Ryan Sadden is actually right. So maybe I should take all that back. Well, yeah. I. I I need to know like the end game for Bray, and I think we don't know that yet. So the fiend just kind of like pops up. All right. And... But here's the thing: I don't think WWE knows that neither. <laughs> oh, I I totally agree with you. I think at this point, I, I thought it was pretty creative what they did with the like three faces of Bray type thing when going with Braun and everything like that. But um, they can't really keep doing that, and. I did think it was interesting what he did with Alexa Bliss yeah, a couple of weeks ago, so I'm interested to see where that goes. But other than that, you know, it's spraying a mask. Why is he so much more fear? Like, I guess in a way, it's like almost the demon with Finn Balor, and that he's he's more aggressive when he's the fiend. But they never really tell that story. They, they just say, told "Oh my that God, it's Bray Wyatt." Finn Balor, though, they did. They did. They told. They kind of mentioned it in like a different promos and whatnot, at least when he's in, he was in NXT. I don't think they really explained that too much on WWE TV. Maybe the announcers did. But I think I remember them talking about that NXT, like, you know, the paint 
makes changes him like he has a demon inside him yeah. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm saying like you would think that was what they would be doing with Bray, but they don't really explain like the Fiend character. I guess because they don't, they, they got to play like they don't know anything about the Fiend and why is he so scary and stuff like that. So, um, and he's attacked a lot of old legends. You know, God, that's so scary. But um, I mean, I like him. It's something different. I like the music. I like the production of it. So I'm just kind of a sucker for that at this point because it seems like it's the most effort WWE's putting in, and I guess that's why I feel that way because it's like, hey, they're actually making an effort. Well, that's nice. <laughs> Doing what they're supposed to do. Put effort into something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else current uh, to talk about, want to jump into our SummerSlam discussion? Oh, SummerSlam 1990 discussion? Of, a lot of uh, nostalgia watching this show and going back through it. It was... SummerSlam 1990, the Philadelphia Spectrum was apparently my first ever wrestling event. And I don't remember so much about it, but I do have vague images of, you know, what I watched on TV. And I'm like, do I remember seeing that in real life? Because <laughs> I don't remember how close I was, but I, s some things I kind of was like, wow. Like, I remember a different perspective, like a different angle of me watching that. So, it, like, comes and goes in certain things. So, uh yeah, a lot of nostalgia watching this show, and I was, I was happy to do it, and well, I appreciate you doing it because I brought it up like two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, but do you want to tell that story more in depth about this being, you know, potentially your first wrestling show that you saw in person? Yeah, uh, I think I've mentioned before that my first ever wrestling show that I watched was WrestleMania six, and I don't believe I watched the whole thing front like beginning to end but i was over my babysitter's house at the time and her family were big wrestling fans so she would put it on and i would watch it you know with all the larger than life characters and the colors and the you know just everything kind of i gravitated towards it and watched it and you know the way they reacted to everything going on like i was kind of like wow this is important i should be involved in it like i should i should like this stuff if i want to feel like part of everyone else <laughs> and i was still four years old at the time so I was learning about life. So at some point between WrestleMania 6, because I didn't watch that live, and SummerSlam, I saw Ultimate Warrior versus Hulk Hogan. I was hooked. Uh, I don't think I watched the weekly shows on the like on the weekend when they would have superstars and stuff. I don't believe I watched those until maybe 1991. Uh, so I wasn't watching closely but i would watch that pay-per-view like every time i would go on maybe i'd ask them to put it on uh maybe it was just me and everyone else all the other kids were out so you know my babysitter was watching me and she would put it on so i could watch it S somehow my mom took me to SummerSlam 1990 and my babysitter's family and her they were there but they were in a different section and part of me remembers like looking back up a couple rows and seeing them. And I'm like, would that have been in a house show? I'm trying to remember. And, you know, one of the, uh, my friend that was close to my age a couple of years ago, actually, I remember asking her. And she was like, yeah, like we were, both our families were at SummerSlam. So, I mean, I wasn't being lied to, <laughs> you know, like why would they lie to me about that? So I had a very vague memory of being at SummerSlam. But, have a better recollection of the event by watching the VHS tape 
multiple, multiple times as a kid. And even on the network, when the WWE Network came up, it was one of the first shows I watched just for the nostalgia feel. And I just, I don't even remember like before the pay-per-view or after the pay-per-view, like what happened. But I do have an image of the cage, the steel cage around the ring, Ultimate Warrior climbing up on it and shaking it from a different perspective than we see on the WWE Network and, and the actual pay-per-view. So it, it's very interesting how I go like in and out of remembering certain things and not remembering others about that event. That's dope, man. That's dope. Yeah, it's like um, it, it's so funny to think about. I was four years old, so you know maybe at that point my memory was just finally starting to go. <laughs> <laughs> or st- I should say, starting to my memory at least starts there. Yeah, not not starting to go. I mean that'd be wild <laughs> if you're four yeah. years old and you're already forgetting stuff that you don't <laughs> even remember yet. Like, um, I I got a memory like that too of when, when I saw RoboCop three in a the movie theater when I was like f- <laughs> three or four years old, but. I remember being there mainly because I had an ear infection and I was crying the entire movie. Mm. So I don't really remember the movie that well. Like watching it in a theater, the movie was trash anyway, so I didn't miss anything. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember crying in a the movie theater a lot when I was like four years old because I had an ear infection. Like I, I think I just got it that day and I was just like, it was bothering me. So I cried the entire time. So I'm sure the people sitting around me were just thrilled <laughs> with me sitting in that theater crying for 90 straight minutes i'm sure it was fantastic for yeah them. i i think i can't remember if there was any merchandise purchase like if i got a shirt or anything um because i did have merchandise back then i had a couple shirts uh and some toys i mean the action figures definitely but you know like a teddy bear stuff like that a board game so i don't know you know what if, if anything was purchased at SummerSlam in the beginning you know it was it my first wrestling stuff there or if it came later down the road but um i wish i still had some of these things because i through the years i've either gotten rid of them or they're in storage somewhere and i haven't been able to get the storage so eventually i'll get there and i'll see if maybe i'm like, well, maybe I could look up something and see if it was available in August 1990 versus, you know, later. But uh, very, very vague memory of it. And that might have been my first time ever at the Spectrum because I didn't go to any sporting events there except wrestling matches. Uh, speaking of the Spectrum, glad you brought it up. By the way, I was only a year and a half old when this event happened, so I was not in attendance on this night. Uh <laughs> But the Spectrum, this was uh, probably the second or third most famous arena in the area, in this, in this area of the country, I should say. The Spectrum uh, was Philadelphia's uh, first major arena in the city, built in 1967. So this, like I said, this was a, a major arena in the Northeast. Like if Madison Square Garden was number one, uh, the Spectrum was definitely in contention for, like, number two in the Northeast area, you know, with, like, the Boston Garden and, uh, I don't know, you know the, maybe Meadowlands Arena. Uh, yeah. That's about it, though. Yeah, I was, I was going to say Amashi and Boston Garden, pretty much, because, you know, we even, maybe the Maple Leaf Gardens, but that's in Canada. So if you're talking right, the U.S. Right. US only, yeah, definitely among right. the top three. Uh, so it was a big-time arena. WWE would come to Philly 
especially in the 80s, they would come to the spectrum, I think, monthly. Like, they came here a lot back in the 80s. And this is in 1990, so, you know, obviously coming out of the 80s. Uh, the spectrum was big just for the building itself was a major building in, in the country. Um, we're talking, you know, Flyers and Sixers played there, of course. The building was built for the Flyers specifically. Like the, the, I think the Flyers were the ones who built it and they let the Sixers play there as well. But the, the building didn't come, the building wasn't built, I should say, until the Flyers started became a thing in Philadelphia in, in 67. Uh, but it had numerous rock concerts, you know, all the top rock concert and musical acts, you know, in general over the years uh, up until, uh, you know, when it was finally closed down and torn down. Uh, you name you name it, they performed it like a who's who of people performed at the Spectrum because, again, it was a massive yeah. building in the air. It's a big deal to be there. Um, also, what a cool name. The Spectrum. Absolutely. Like, this was back when arenas and stadiums hadn't quite had the the uh, you know the 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 uh, promotional aspect to it, or the, the when they people would buy sponsorship on the building. So like Wells Fargo Center or Staples Center or something like that. Now it's not Boston Garden; it's TD Garden in Boston. You know, it's not Maple Leaf Gardens. That building's T- torn down anyway, I believe. <laughs> yeah. It's the Air Canada Center, you know, in Toronto. So this is when the buildings just had character and they had their own name. So you get the Spectrum. You had again Boston Garden, Maple Leaf Gardens. You had the Omni in Atlanta. You had yeah. remember the Mecca in Milwaukee. Yeah. Like yeah. some of those arenas had cool names that you just don't see anymore because of sponsorship. And hey, I get it. You know, that's a lot of money that sports teams. And these buildings can bring in. There's a lot of revenue they can bring in. I mean, millions on top of millions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it just to slap a bank name on top of the building and then you go, <laughs> like you said. Um, and the stadiums too had these types of names. Of course, here in Philly we had Veteran Stadium, which also hosted a Great American Bash event. I think in '86. I think. Um, but you had the Vet. You had Three River Stadium. You had Riverfront Stadium. You had. Jacobs Field in Cleveland. Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, you know, some a lot of those stadiums obviously were cookie cutter, and they, they were the multi-purpose stadiums that were trashed by the by the '90s <laughs> and the early 2000s. But they all had their own little character. As bad as they were, you know, the King Dome or the one in Oakland would still the, the Athletics still play in. Um, you know, uh, the yeah. one in Miami they used to have until the Marlins moved out of it. I think the they just called the Oakland Coliseum, right? Something that yeah but it's been like they've had it's had multiple names over the years but i think oakland coliseum is like uh i was a big coliseum fan i love that i love that word right coliseum video (laughs) there you go but like candlestick park in san francisco or the astrodome which hosts wrestlemania in 2001 kingdom all these types of stadiums and for the vast majority of them are gone. You know, they were only built like in the, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I think Veteran Stadium opened in like early 70s. And by yeah. 2002, 2003, all those stadiums were either no one was playing there or they were torn down. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and, and it, they, they were falling apart. It wasn't like teams just moved out. They were falling apart and needed either millions of dollars of repair or it's like, let's just tear it down because we could just build a new stadium, a football only and a baseball only, and we'll be all right. And that's what most cities did. And, here we are today, but the Spectrum, uh, a great building, saw multiple championships, both for the Stanley Cups uh, from the for the Flyers, 
happened while they were playing at the Spectrum. Uh, the last Sixers NBA championship happened while they were playing at the Spectrum in 83. So the Spectrum saw a lot of big events and it had a lot of character to it. Not to say like that the Wells Fargo Center today yeah. doesn't. It's just it's just a different vibe. People yeah. have this, that nostalgic, talking about nostalgia, people have a warm place in their hearts for the Spectrum. And it's, yeah, a, dope, it's a historic building in Philly. The Phantoms even won a Calder Cup there, I believe, before it was torn down because I think the Phantoms played there. Uh which was the anyone out there? It's the minor. It was the minor league team for the Flyers, and yeah, the, a, the Phantoms the became very team. yeah. The Phantoms became very popular around here before they moved they to I think uh, Adirondack. They moved to from Philly, yeah. and then they they eventually came back down around here. But they're in the Lehigh Valley now. But yeah, you know, Lehigh they, Valley Phantoms now. Yeah, yeah. So they played at the Spectrum too, and there those are. I remember going there and watching Phantoms games and. You know, it was after I became a fan. By 1996, I think the Quarter State Center was built. So, yep. any I didn't really watch sports or go to sporting events until after that. I went to Phillies games at the Vet, but that was really it. No Flyers or Sixers games until you know the center was built. So I would go there for the game. So I'd never really been in the Spectrum unless it was a wrestling event or uh, a Phantoms game or or something like that, which was really cool. It was just like. <sighs> It's so different being in the Spectrum than it is the Wells Fargo Center today. Like, if you were in the Spectrum, and I was only a kid, but I, w- I was in there, and versus the, the uh, Wells Fargo Center, it's just such a different feel. The, the seats just go up. It, it's, it feels more enclosed, but it, it's, a, it's not like a bad thing. It's a good thing, especially when I was there for a lot of wrestling events. So it just felt like I was close to everything. And it was just like one of those buildings that looked cool from the outside as a kid. And I just loved it. And, you know, it was a shame that it got torn down, but that's what happens. There was a while there, though, where we had two arenas in Philly. We had, and they were right next to each other. We had the Wells Fargo Center, uh, which hosted a lot of the major events. Sixers and Flyers played there. But then the Spectrum was still around because, like you said, the the Wells Fargo Center, where back then it was the Core State Center. Uh, that opened in 96. So the Spectrum was yeah. still around until 2009. So for 13 years, we had two buildings here yeah. in Philly, two big, major buildings. So a lot of times what you see was uh, the Flyers and Sixers, they had their dates in the, in the main building. But the Spectrum, a lot of these secondary teams like the Soul or even one, the one time I was in the Spectrum was when I watched the Kicks. Remember the indoor yeah. soccer team? Yeah, I remember that. I had a middle school trip there. In like 2001, right. 2000, something like that, when we, we went to see a kicks game at the Spectrum. So stuff like that would happen at the Spectrum. There'll still be events there. But I think, I think it's just like became, concerts too. Yeah, they still yeah. had a lot of events there. But I think it just became cumbersome because it's like, what's the point of having two? You got to have two staffs. It's a lot of money. Right. Right. And we'll just make space for the soul when they need to play. And because <laughs> that's really, when, by the time 2009 came around, I guess the Arena Football League didn't have a season in 2009. But even in 2011, when they came back, a lot of those lesser, like those, I don't say minor, but those not, not non-top four major sports teams <laughs> there you go. in the city weren't really around. Like the kicks, I don't know if they were around in 2010, 2011. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, who else? The Phantoms, they were, I think they were playing Rondack or they were about to by that point. So yeah. the only team left was really like the Soul. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and maybe... Um, you know, I know Villanova played their, some of their home games at the Wells Fargo Center. I don't know if they played any games at the Spectrum by the time the Wells Fargo Center came around. So, 
uh, yeah, it just, I guess it became cumbersome and then, you know, got torn down in 2009. But uh, before that, it was the building. Like, it really changed, I think, the uh, the entertainment. It definitely changed the entertainment uh, kind of vibe here because now we started getting major events. We had major sporting events with hockey and basketball. We already had basketball, but, you know, it, they're, now they're in a the top-flight arena, uh, and then you can get big, massive concerts here now and, you know, different types of shows and all that. Uh, so it, really, it, was, it brought a lot of stuff here to Philly and kind of changed the landscape. So shout out to the Spectrum. Uh, I think I felt like that was necessary to give uh, the Spectrum some love. Yeah, yeah, that's a good call by you. And I, I do think when they the Phantoms used to play the Flyers in the preseason before the NHL season would kick off, and I do believe before they went to Adirondack, I, I believe they played at the Spectrum even though the Wells Fargo Center was there at the time. I think, you know, it was just kind of, because I remember going to the Spectrum for that game. It might have been 2009. Uh, maybe it was before that, but I, I even had pitchers, you know. So it was definitely a cool experience being in there for a hockey game and, you know, Phantoms versus Flyers, fun little exhibition game before the season got started for each of them. And, uh, you know, that was, I think, the last time I was in the Spectrum for that. Right. Yeah, just just you know, I know people from outside of Philly. You know, they're not they don't not familiar with the Spectrum, but it was like our palace. It was like a big deal for stuff to happen at the Spectrum, and uh, like I said, it's still near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. Uh, I remember when they tore it down, and you know, a lot of people was like kind of sad about it. It was like, damn, that's the Spectrum. I remember watching the Flyers there, or watching the Sixers, or Bruce Springsteen, or Hulk Hogan and, and Ultimate Warrior there. Like we're gonna talk about on this night, uh, but. SummerSlam 1990. It is the third annual SummerSlam uh, in the third different states. First one was in New York. Second one was New Jersey. This one in Pennsylvania. 1991, it was in New York. So for the first four years of SummerSlam, it was pretty much within three states and the Eastern Time Zone. New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. The first time SummerSlam left the Eastern Time Zone and left this tri-state area in particular was 1992 when it went to London. <laughs> it's just completely Way left the across country. the pond. Right. Whole now, different country. It's like, we got to get out of this time zone. Forget it. we got to get out of this country. Let's go to London. Now, I do remember so, reading something, and I don't, I don't know how accurate it is, and I didn't look into it, but I wondered if you heard it. Was it supposed to be in, in like, Baltimore or something, and then they moved it to London at the last minute? Did you I don't know how you would do anything? that. I don't know how you would move something to London at the last minute. Right. I, I mean, like I agree. I was like, you would have to really like plan that. Like, why would you go to London? <laughs> and uh, well, that, that was for the Wembley case. Stadium, eighty plus thousand seats. When your right. original plan was to stay in the U.S. and like a twenty thousand seat arena, I don't, I don't get it. If that were the case, someone please tell us and correct us because that yes. seems like the the opposite. Like it should be the opposite. Like you were planning for London, right? And then you settled for Baltimore. <laughs> like, yeah. It might have not been Baltimore. It might have been like another eastern city, like you said. It just kind of made me think, and you know, maybe I'll look into that after we record just to make sure I'm accurate. But I, I do believe right. I read that. I might. I, I think. I think I've heard that before too, but I'm not. I'm not totally sure. I can't really speak on it with any knowledge or authority. Right. But what I can speak on with authority is Vince McMahon's ridiculous introductions for pay per views. <laughs> he did it at WrestleMania six. And here we are, a couple months later in August, 
for SummerSlam 1990, and here he is again with these voiceovers. It's, it's the heat is back at SummerSlam. <laughs> oh my God, it's hot! It's so hot! <laughs> it's hot in Philadelphia. Can you? It's so humid too. Welcome to SummerSlam, everybody! Like <laughs> that's that's pretty much it. My first, uh, the very first time I ever heard Vince McMahon. So. Go figure, because he wasn't part of WrestleMania six. I mean the the intro, yes, but uh, you know I didn't watch that until many years later. So it, for me, it was always Gorilla Monsoon, Jesse Ventura, you know, and and then boom, I get Vince McMahon and Roddy Piper, right? Which was a pair that I don't recall hearing until this show. I don't remember hearing them both on a call together. Um, usually it's Vince and yeah, Vince and uh, or Gorilla and. Jesse the Body Ventura, yeah, Vince and Jesse yeah. the Body Ventura, I think, for a little bit there, and Vince and Jerry Lawler and Jim Ross, Vince and Macho Man, and but we, tonight on this night we got Vince McMahon and Roddy Piper, which is a, was a unique pairing. But I'll have more to say about things Roddy Piper said on the show <laughs> in a little bit. But um, yeah, interesting thing about Piper is that he had not long come back from doing movies. Uh, including uh, the the big movie he did was They Live, which was, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Nick. I've seen clips. Okay, that's an improvement over not <laughs> seeing it at all, which is a, is your usual answer. It is. Um, but a uh, big sci-fi uh, hit movie with uh, directed by John Carpenter, one of my favorite directors of all time, directed Halloween, directed uh, The Thing, one of my probably my favorite horror movie of all time and uh did prince of darkness into the mouth of madness a lot of great movies and a lot of great movies so um uh and he did, did the remake of halloween a couple years ago the one that had jamie lee curtis back in it again so that's what's gonna call uh roddy piper he was doing john carpenter movies he comes back now he's calling SummerSlam in 1990 yeah and apparently because uh, jesse ventura left a couple weeks prior couple weeks prior oh yeah i was not aware of that yeah so it was uh that whole video game debacle if uh you've ever heard of jesse ventura wanting royalties from a video game or whatever that apparently caused that how dare he ask for royalties on his likeness (laughs) what a crazy thing to do yeah this was i think piper's first pay-per-view on commentary i don't know if it was the first time he was ever on it because i you know maybe the weekly shows he was on but I think he did commentary back in the territories too, and he was like, okay. you know, in the, in the territories. But this had to have been his first pay per view, right? Because before this was yeah, on WrestleMania, so. and he wasn't on call for that. He was wrestling Bad News Brown, yeah. and he painted himself half black for some reason. <laughs> he did. He was Again. not painted half black on this pay per view, though. No, but he had some strange things to say. He I'll had get a into lot it in of a little bit. things to say. <laughs> get into it in a little bit, but we start off the show with. The Rockers versus Power and Glory, Hercules and Paul Roma. The Rockers, of course, feature WWE Hall of Famer Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, <laughs> who was in the news recently <laughs> for yeah. admitting, confessing to killing someone in his teenage years. Now, he clarified and said, I just made him disappear, see? I didn't say I killed him. But when you make somebody disappear, they're never seen again. And you say, hey, maybe they should look in the river for this guy. <laughs> that means you killed them, fam. <laughs> like, 
Now, granted, the story was kind of odd. I mean, it, it, it sounded like, according to Marty Jannetty, he was defending himself in, you know, in this encounter he had with this person that he, quote-unquote, allegedly <laughs> killed uh, or murdered or may disappear, I should say, yeah. <laughs> to never be seen again. Uh, then he talked about the woman he was with and her, quote-unquote, Jamaican jealousy. What the hell is that? Jamaican jealousy. Somehow. What the hell is that, bro? Was he looking to like, alliterate? I don't know. I doubt it. Or just being racist. Yes, exactly. Know. That could be a thing. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's strange. That's very strange. But on this night, he had his working boots on, boy. I tell you, <laughs> oh, he man. worked most of the match. Yeah, it was uh, actually uh, an extended squash. And... Uh, you know, Shawn Michaels apparently had a knee injury going into this, and you you could kind of tell through you know when they were running down to the ring, they weren't really running. They were, you know, Marty Jannetty, what a good partner he was. You know, walk power walking with Shawn Michaels, so it didn't look like you know Shawn was hurt or anything. But you could definitely tell Shawn was limping around out there, and then you know he had to sell the knee after Hercules hit the chain with it, and uh, you know it. it it was a beautiful tag team match. I'm gonna say I loved it. I loved this tag team match. Beautiful. Uh, All right. <laughs> I loved this tag team match. Uh, I just said beautiful, but you to did. me, it was uh, perfect tag team work from Power and Glory. Uh, taking out Sean when he was trying to get up like three or four times. Like working Marty Jannetty, I just thought it was awesome. I mean, it was a good story that they told in there. Uh, like I said, Shawn Michaels gets hurt, gets hurt early in the match. Marty fights, fends him off. He tries his best, but he falls. He fights valiantly, but he he falls to Power and Glory and their cool ass finishing move. Yes, that Power and Glory had, which Paul Roma and Hercules as a tag team was kind of dope. It. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. Underrated. I'm with you. This might have been their first tag team match together, because apparently, you know, I'm, I'm reading back and I'm like, how did the, how did this come to fruition? Type thing, and Roma was a babyface, and I guess he got attacked from behind, and, and then the Rockers came out for the next match, and he thought it was the Rockers doing it, and then he started like picking a fight with them, and then Hercules came out to back up Paul Roma, so it was like kind of how this match got set up. So I don't know if. Hercules and Paul Roma had a tag team match before this, but man, they looked cool as hell with like the matching tights and the the shirt they had on with the glasses and you know the teamwork they did. Like you said, their finisher it, it was impressive. I was like, man, I remember kind of being like impressed by them, even though I was like, man, they're bad guys, so I I hate them. But I was like, damn, they really kicked the Rockers' ass. <laughs> they did, they did. But Power and Glory, I think. Uh this was still like a, I guess, a golden age for tag teams in WWE when they really cared. Because uh, you still had Demolition around, the Heart Foundation, the Road Warriors just came in not long before this. And, um, you know, a little time before this, they had, who was that, that British Bulldogs a couple years before this. Yeah. And, you know, they had some great tag teams in the 80s into the early 90s. And then somewhere they just said, you know what, tag teams, who cares? And then <laughs> just... Until they started doing the TLC matches in 2000, it's like they didn't care about the tag teams that much. And then after they stopped doing those TLC matches in 2000, they was like, oh, you know what? We forgot that we don't care about tag teams again and just 
kind of just didn't give a damn. Yeah. For they took until- the Eric Bischoff approach, who Eric Bischoff completely obliterated tag team wrestling and WCW. So WWE just kind of went with that. Uh, I wish they didn't, because I love tag team I wrestling. Agree. I love good I tag agree. team wrestling. I like a specific kind of tag team wrestling. Everyone's, you know, the the tag team wrestling that takes place in AEW today, I'm kind of like trying to get on board, but there's just like too much double teams and the referee kind of losing control type of thing for my liking. Uh, I like the old school tag team wrestling a little more. It's just my preference. And that's what we saw with Power and Glory, just great double teams and getting out of the ring, quick tags, beating up Sean when he's trying to get up. Like that's just part of what i love about that era of tag team wrestling when when the referee enforces the rules like the five count and you know just you know being in the your corner and and you know not seeing the tag you got to be able to see the tag and all that those are things that you can use to tell stories in wrestling whether the heel getting the heat or you know like it happens all the time referee has to see the tag but he doesn't see the baby face make the tag yeah kicks the guy out and then the hot tag happens, and people blow up, and it's like there could be so many good ways to tell stories of tag team wrestling that I think is missing from uh, today's product in general. You know, maybe the you know AEW style may not be necessarily for you. I guess they're trying to create a new wave, but I'm like you. I kind of like that old school style where they use the ref- do stuff behind the referee's back and all those little things that you know can be done to tell a story throughout the course of a tag team match. Uh, it's not, it doesn't take a lot of effort either. It's just little mm-hmm. tricks of the trade that still work, I think. I still I still think fans buy into the heels cheating and you know the, the ref missing that tag and kicking the baby face out type of thing. Even though he nev- he doesn't see the, the heel tag, but he'll just say, oh, you tagged, and he'll clap his hands. Oh, I saw <laughs> right. it, okay. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny because... Just once you'd think the baby faces would come in and be like, and do an audibly audible clap, so you'd be like, "See, you tagged me," because the referee just allows the heels to do that. But that doesn't get the fans involved as much, I guess. But it just well, makes yeah, the refs it, look worse, and uh, it does. We'll talk about a specific ref, ref later on, which is just I, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Just hold your horses before you bury uh, <laughs> Baby Earl. All right, we got rest, a bunch of the show. You to get call him Baby Earl. <laughs> That's what people call him. That's his I, don't, I don't even know that. Why do they call him Baby Earl? Get out of here. Because his twin is older than him, technically, I think. <laughs> Baby Earl. <laughs> even here. though he has a twin. Tw- I, I know Earl. he had a twin, the better referee. Wow. <laughs> I don't remember. Well, Dave Hepter. Dave, that's Dave. Twin. He should have stayed a referee. Where did, where, did, where did he go? I think he just became like a front office guy or you know, uh-huh. a behind-the-scenes guy. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Dave came out the womb first, and that's what they call Earl, the baby Earl. <laughs> baby Earl. <laughs> All right, moving on. After this match, or <laughs> well, before we move on, actually, we got to talk about the Rockers and that Zubass, or them Zubass, or is that singular or plural? Zubass. I don't know. No Either way, whoo, that was a look. Yeah, I mean, it was colorful, you know, that... A lot of the colorful things got me interested in just watching. Like it was, it was something different. I guess I don't That's know. Fair. I didn't just, really think much of it. Uh, you know, then I was just kind of like, "Wow, wrestlers dress funny, but it's cool because 
like people are cheering for them, so it's not weird. So yeah, that's kind of like my thought process at four years old. Thing about the Zubaz, it stuck around for a while. Like I think people were wearing Zubaz until like ninety four. <laughs> like, like people were still yeah. wearing Zubaz in like ninety four, maybe ninety five. But Zubaz was here for a good while. Yeah, definitely, definitely in pro wrestling. Yeah, definitely in pro wrestling. <laughs> uh, look up. I want you to look up something though. There was an arena football team called the Tampa Bay Storm, and they wore Zubaz pants for a couple years. You should look it up. Uh, oh boy. It was quite hideous, if you could imagine, but it was the early 90s, and people liked it, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, it um, redirected me to my Kohl's app. There you go. Should I buy them? Wow, $40. <laughs> That's the intense. Kohl's <laughs> app. Hey, no, I just Google searched it, and then the first thing was Kohl's. <laughs> they have Zubaz at Kohl's? Men's Zubaz black and red Tampa Bay Buccaneers throwback zebra pants. So it was the Buccaneers, so it wasn't what you said. Tampa Bay Storm. Okay. Let's see. Tampa okay, yeah, I see a picture. Yeah, those are something. Oh, boy. <laughs> those are something. <laughs> you know who the quarterback was for the Tampa Bay Storm? Uh, Carson Wentz. <laughs> Uh, no. Jay Gruden. Oh, wow. Oh, look at that. I just, I went to a story from May 2014, CBS Sports, and they're Jay Gruden rocking that Zubaz is the caption. Jay Gruden, Arena Football League legend, bro. Man, that was in 1991. Wow. Won championships as a quarterback and a head coach. How about that? Wow. Jay Gruden. All right. After the match, we get an interview with uh, Sean Mooney and Mr. Perfect and Bobby Heenan. I had a couple observations <laughs> from this. Number one, Sean Mooney, probably the GOAT, one of the GOAT backstage interviewers, him, Gene Oakland. Um, I'm sure you can name a couple more besides those two. Joe Fowler. Uh, but who? <laughs> no. Joe Fowler. Oh, stop it. Um, <laughs> but Sean Mooney was, was great. But how perfect no pun intended, was a tandem of Mr. Perfect and Bobby Heenan. They, they were like, they fit together like, they were just perfect together. No pun they intended. <laughs> I think that's absolutely a pun intended. They just played off each other so well. And yeah, maybe this was pre-taped or whatever, but just the, the back and forth and just everything. It just was great. And you could tell that they were like a tight-knit unit. You know, they're there was nothing that was going to come between them, not even a tornado. And the way they would, you know, talk about a tornado and how you could see it coming from a mile away, stuff like that, just like denigrating him because of his name. Like it just, his nickname, I should say. It was just like hilarious. They were downplaying it and it just made me laugh. Speaking of that promo, there were a lot of tornado puns throughout the promo yeah. and the match, the, the ensuing match between Mr. Perfect and the Texas Tornado uh, for the WWE Intercontinental Championship. Of course, Texas Tornado was Kerry Von Erich, uh, or, you know, his wrestling name was Kerry Von Erich. And um, it was a good match. You know, it was a <laughs> fine match. Perfect sold his ass off as much as he yeah. could. He did. He flipped, flopped, and flew around the ring. Um, only like Mr. Perfect could. Like, there are many gifable moments from uh, yes. this match, especially the finish where he hit the tornado <laughs> punch and yeah. 
perfect did a somersault pretty much after. <laughs> He's been around like 80 times. Right. <laughs> Which was, that's a talent, man. That's, that's really yeah. talented. But uh, yeah. one thing I found interesting was Piper talking about what, what he asked what Heenan knew about wrestling, which I know in character, in story, Piper was only saying that because Heenan was a manager. But And I'm also sure that Piper actually knew about Heenan's wrestling past, but Bobby Heenan was an actual wrestler back in the day before yeah. his managerial days. Uh, he was, you know, he's a. I want to know. I don't know if he's a top guy, but he was, you know, he's on wrestled a lot before he became a manager. But I think he stopped wrestling because he had an injury. But uh, he didn't actually knew a lot, a lot about wrestling. In fact, yeah, he was probably a godfather of wrestling. I say that like with at least all the knowledge he had. I didn't even know he was a wrestler until years later. You know, this is my first event, really. So I just knew Bobby Heenan as a manager, but just everything he said, like just looking back, everything he said had a purpose. He tried to get under the skin of the person and the fans. And with all his like, you know, names, name calling, he would do like humanoids and ham and eggers and stuff like that. Like, I don't even know what that was supposed to mean, but like, I don't, I don't know if he was like demeaning me or what, but you know, it was just funny. Like everything that he did had a purpose. He, he never wasted a moment in trying to get either him over or his opponent over or whoever he was managing. We, uh, have wax poetic about, uh, Bobby to bring him on the show in the past. We did a whole tribute episode to him a couple, right after he died, actually a couple years ago. So if you want to listen to that, check that out in the archives. But um, I've written this, and I think, you know, Philly.com around the time that he died. And I say, I'm pretty sure I said it on that show, but I'll say it again. I think you can make the case of Bobby Heenan is arguably the most talented performer in wrestling history. Like just, just from sheer talent. I'm not saying he's the most over or the greatest technical wrestler or whatever, but from a talking standpoint, you're not going to find too many talkers better than him. And as you saw in this match, he could sell his ass off because when Tornado... Texas tornado hit him. He flew around. And, he, and I was watching it with my girlfriend. Even she was like, "Wow, that was a good fall." I was like, "Yeah, that was." Like he did as much as he can to make Kerry Von Erich look good and with that punch. But I, again, I don't know if you can find somebody more just overall talented because again, he could wrestle, he could talk, he could do all the slapstick funny stuff. And I wrote it too in, in the story, like I guess my obituary to him a couple years ago. That I, he could have been, he could have succeeded in any form of entertainment whether it's comedy, movies, whatever, television, he could have been successful. We were just lucky enough that he chose wrestling. He was that talented. Yep. He could have done anything in Hollywood, anything in TV. He just so happened to be in wrestling, and we were all fortunate as wrestling fans to have him, you know, be really showcase his talents in our wacky, crazy art form known as pro wrestling. But Bobby Heenan, I, I can't say enough about him or how good he was as a talent, pure talent. And what makes it even more impressive to me is that both Bobby Heenan and Mr. Perfect did this with only really like a week or two preparation. Because do you remember who their the original opponent for Mr. Perfect was supposed to be? I'm going to guess it was Brutus Beefcake. Yeah. yeah, Because he was, beat him at WrestleMania, right? Yeah. And that's when he had his parasailing accident. So, you know, that's... Brutus was out for a while, and they plugged in Kerry Von Erich. And hell, if I knew, it was my first wrestling event, really like big event and pay-per-view that I taped myself. 
I'm thinking Tex, like Kerry Von Erich's this huge star just based off Mr. Perfect and Bobby Heenan. It's crazy how good they were at what they did. Yeah, they made him like a million bucks in just one match. Um, backstage, though, they're back there. They interrupt. Heenan and Perfect interrupt the actual GOAT backstage interviewer, Mean Gene Oakland. <laughs> and Heenan is crying, and they're <laughs> upset, and it's great. Heenan just crying. I can't believe it. Oh, terrible <laughs> refereeing. Oh, it was, it's so good. It's it's so good. Like, Bobby Heenan, rest in peace. Did you notice this? What's that? Yes, rest in peace, Bobby Heenan. Did you notice before the match they had pl- played that promo for with Kerry Von Erich, the Texas Tornado? He was wearing yellow tights, and he came out wearing white tights. Did you that? I did not notice that, but I guess it was a it was a pre-tape. They taped it before the show, which Correct. A, I'm sure all those pre-match promos. But right, right, and it's funny because I made a note of it. But when I was four years old, I always thought that was weird. I was like, "Why would he change his tights from the time he's interviewed in the back to when he went to the ring? Like, why, why would he change his tights? Because you know they weren't shorts. You could tell they were the same tights, the same. You know, they didn't have any legs on them or whatever. And even as a four-year-old, I was like, that's just kind of weird. And I was looking for continuity at that point, apparently. And uh, I was reminded by his promo about how he came out in different tights uh, to the pay-per-view than the pre-match promo. So uh, it was just like, I didn't even realize things were taped beforehand back then. So in my mind, I'm like, he changed his tights from five seconds ago. Like, that makes no sense. So... They could have taped that promo the day before. Even they could have. Like, Bobby or, didn't even happen that day. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So it's funny looking back now, like my four-year-old mind. I'm like, even thinking, why the hell does he have different colored tights on? Yeah, that that's a uh, that's a little flub on Caravan Eric's part. That's right. You got to wear the same tights, baby. You just right, right before you go out to the ring. So mm-hmm. wear the same tights that you're gonna wear in the ring. Uh, but next on the card, we got Sensational Sherry. Versus Sweet Sapphire. Now, there's some story here. A lot of story here. Yeah. Um, for one, of course, Sapphire, who I'm going to talk about a little bit, you know, in some detail. So give me a second there. I got, let me set up the story first. Uh, Sapphire was, of course, with Dusty Rose as his manager. Uh, he's going against Macho Man, who has Sherry as his manager. So naturally, they gonna, they're going to fight each other. Uh, they're supposed to fight each other. Sapphire never comes out. Sasheri standing in the ring wearing a awful mask. Um, it looked like Willow, like Jeff Hardy's character Willow. <laughs> yeah. And she had That's like, where he stole it from, that bastard. Pretty much. And he had like Finn Balor's, she had like Finn Balor's face paint on or body paint. <laughs> she looked like a member of Cats of the musical. With that said, all respect to Sherry. She was a, another tremendous talent gone from this earth way too soon and i don't think well she wasn't she isn't a ww hall of fame but i think she just i don't still think don't think she gets enough credit for how good she was as a manager and as a wrestler uh so much respect to her but this this was this was not it on this night sherry i (laughs) I gotta say that (laughs) all due respect this is not it but uh sherry's in the ring she's waiting waiting sapphire never shows up so now everybody's like where the hell sapphire where did she go is she 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 all right is she cool after the match, Dusty, he's wondering where Sapphire is. Oh, I can't. I, I don't know where she is, Daddy. Oh, where, where are you, baby? Where's Sapphire? Jim Duggan comes in for some reason. Oh, we're looking for her, Dusty. He's like, what? Like, <laughs> why is Jim <laughs> Duggan so part weird. of the search party? Oh, I hated that. 
<laughs> Why is Jim Duggan part of the search party? Call the police. <laughs> Why are you looking for her in the lo- men's locker room? Like, <laughs> Right. Or don't he have a master to worry about? Like, get somebody else to look for. Why is Jim Duggan looking for her? But we got to talk about Sapphire in particular. Because Sapphire was among, at least her name, Sapphire, which I didn't know this until recently was uh, just another one of the many racist things WWE did back in the day, or wrestling in general. And it's the timing of this is kind of also fitting because we just lost James Harris recently, who also played the character Kamala in WWF TV, or in, in Mid-South as well. Uh, and he was supposed to be this Ugandan giant, you know, Connor, uh what's the word I'm looking for? Um, cannibalistic type of character, big, black and scary, had all the paint on his face and stuff like that. Pretty much had a, no- a bone through his nose. And uh, I'm sure they made a lot of money with Kamala back in Mid-South and even in WWF, but doesn't mean it wasn't super racist. And because mm-hmm. uh, James Harris, just a guy from the South who was just like, oh, I'm, I want to make some money. And he did what he had to do to feed his family, which was paint his face up, paint his stomach up and all this and that. So, but Sapphire... Uh, was also in that line as well because I don't know if you knew this, Nick, but the term a sapphire is like a black character trope from the 1800s into the 1900s. And it's pretty much a, a caricature that's a black, sassy woman. Hmm. You know, the angry black woman. And she's known as a sapphire. And I got this straight, so if you don't believe me and what I'm saying to you I got this straight from my information from the National Museum of African American Culture, African American History and Culture, so this is Smithsonian Museum, uh, Smithsonian Building and they have an entire page set up with all of the African American stereotypes and tropes and caricatures that have you know, per- been uh permeated our entertainment in our society yeah, I for, just pulled it up. for centuries, right? Yeah. And I'm going to read it straight from the website for those that are interested. So it says, the sapphire caricature from the 1800s through the mid-1900s popularly portrayed black women as sassy, emasculating, and domineering. Unlike the mammy figure, which is also a very, was a very popular trope and caricature of African-American women back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, uh, the mammy figure. Uh, so unlike the mammy figure, this trope depicted African-American women as aggressive, loud, and angry in direct violation of social norms. The sapphire stereotype earned its name on the CBS television show Amos and Andy in association with the character Sapphire Stevens. So she was on that show. Airing from 1951 into 1953 with an all-black cast, Sapphire Stevens was the wife to George Kingfish Stevens. A character depicted depicted as ignorant and lazy, fueling Sapphire's rage. During the Jim Crow period, when blacks were often beaten, jailed, or killed for arguing with whites, these fictional characters would pretend chastise whites, including men. Their sassiness was, was supposed to indicate their acceptance as members of the white family. And acceptance of that sassiness implied that slavery and segregation was not overly oppressive, which, of course, it was. Wow. So... Yeah, I know some people may not know that, uh, but this this page here has all the different mm-hmm. tropes, like the Mandingo, which is like the big black man who you know 
Hmm. Big strong black man or, you know, watermelons and Uncle Tom's and, you know, mammy figures and stuff like that. So just a couple of the, they call it the popular and pervasive stereotypes of African-Americans. So that's straight from the Smithsonian website. And it's just something to think about when you look at Sapphire, who was this sassy black woman who danced around with Dusty Rose and he's a sweet Sapphire and all this and that. And I know on TV it's supposed to be this lovable thing and this lovable relationship that they had. Right. right. But it was also kind of racist, much like everything else that happened Damn. with black people in WWF, excluding Slick, who we failed to mention earlier, yeah. was like this black preacher, pimp type of guy, and he was a jive soul bro and all that. Uh, who I th- look, I like. I think Slick was very talented in what he did, but doesn't mean he didn't depict a essentially a black exploitation character on TV, on WWF TV. Um, but you know, something to think about, and there's some deeper meaning behind Sapphire that. Maybe WWE knew about. I'm, they named her, so I guess they did. I don't know, but that's where, you know, Sapphire. The name itself is a black trope, African American trope character that was a negative one uh, or a stereotype that was predict as um, depicted on television and radio and media uh, throughout the 20th century. So, yeah, we're gonna talk more about wow. Sapphire in the show, but just keep that in mind when we talk about Sapphire. Yeah, that's the first time hearing about that. So, thank you for bringing it to my attention. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you know, this is this is why we do the deep dive so we can learn and, you know, figure things out and, you know, really get into the dig deep, you know, deep dive, dive deep, <laughs> right? <laughs> we don't go deep. We gotta go deep as the yeah. abyss right now. That's, to to no, me, there's you know, no shout doubt. out to abyss, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> to me, there's no doubt in my mind they knew exactly what it was, but that's just kind of how sure. I, I react to, you know, that stuff. I mean, even in the even in 1990, you know, I, I think someone in that position, Vince, uh, anyone running the company w- with them, sh- would have known because they're like an entertainment company still at that point. Like they're they're going national. They've been national for a while at that point. I don't think there's a way they didn't know that. But and the fans didn't know. I mean, there's no Google. You can't just yeah, right. look up like I did last night when I was watching it. I was like, I'm pretty sure because I I've heard of that. I heard of that vaguely before, but I wanted to confirm it. And because wow. I I don't know, I forget where I heard it in the past that Sapphire is like a it's like a African American trope or caricature. Uh, it's a negative one, like like Mammy or Uncle Tom. Um, but I had like I said, I had to confirm it, and I looked it up, and I found the this the African American. Uh, museum website and mm-hmm. there it was you know a couple paragraphs about it so yeah moving on <laughs> <laughs> moving on to the warlord versus tito santana and we got to talk about tito santana oh man <laughs> i wish brian isley was here for this because oh. this was and he's not here to say that otherwise but this is to this day Brian Isley's favorite wrestler, is it not? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't think he was a Rick Martel fan after they split, so he was Tito all the way. Tito all the way. I must say, Tito Santana's theme music was kind of funky. I dug Bang, it. It was a banger. It was a banger. I, like it was kind of <laughs> smooth. Yeah. I, like I, I definitely dug it. Um, Warlord, for some reason, didn't even have music. Don't know why he didn't have music. Didn't have an entrance. <laughs> yeah. Just out there. The only entrance he had was at the Royal Rumble. <laughs> yeah, and then he got eliminated like 10 seconds later. So, yeah. 
something like that. But um, Vince McMahon, <laughs> while Tito Santana is making his entrance, shouts Arriba! <laughs> God damn, we get it. He's Latino. Mm. <laughs> like, come on. And then making it worse, here comes Piper. Called him a bunch of stereotypes, Mexican stereotypes, including called him a bean eater. Good lord, that was on yeah. television or pay per view yeah. in 1990. <sighs> you heard that, Nick? I did. Brutal. Then he talked about tacos, and it's just like, damn. It's like he needed to pick up for whatever the hell Jesse Ventura left off, because Jesse was pretty bad too. But didn't he call him a Mexican jumping bean or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And then I do recall Bobby Heenan at WrestleMania Eight saying yeah. like the flying forearm was a flying burrito yeah. or something like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, but that, I I read, and I'm, I'm not condoning anything, but. I don't know. Was it actually called the flying burrito? Like, was the move called if, that, if it, or were they? If it was, I guess if that yeah, was the case, I can't I remember. I can't remember if I read that he called it that or whatever. And but you would think of Bobby Heenan saying that that he was trying to get a dig in at him, and clearly, you know, that's where I would fall in line at at that point. But I don't know. Yeah. Shout out to Tito Santana. Yeah, and what's funny is this was supposed to be the blow-off between Tito Santana and Rick Martel, but Rick Martel got injured, and they explained his absence as he was at a a uh, fashion show in Paris on the same day. <laughs> so that's he why just was there it didn't have yeah, the match. <laughs> like, yeah, he's just that, like, nope, I'm not going because they were what? building. They were building to it, but I guess after he got hurt, they switched and. Uh, so that was going to be the blow off of Strike Force SummerSlam 90. He couldn't have gotten hurt on the runway. He just was like, he was just there, and that's it. Okay. I mean, they did the same thing. They did that with Shawn Michaels. He came in with like a blown up ACL, and, you know, they worked that into the match, but I guess they couldn't work Martell into the match, uh, too, or something like maybe Maybe he wasn't able to move that much. I don't know what the injury was. If it was like a torn pec or something, I guess it can't really. I don't know why I say that, but <laughs> like torn packs seem to happen a lot to uh, guys like that. But uh, hint, hint. But uh, <laughs> uh, they never really had to blow off. Uh, he he was back by Survivor Series, but you know they were in the tag team matches. So I don't know if they ever had that one on one blow off. Uh, maybe on Superstars taping because I remember when Rick Martel was feuding with Jake Roberts. You know they showed a highlight of him and Tino Santana in the ring wrestling. So. Maybe it was at like a Saturday night's main event. I don't know. Hmm. Only thing I had about this match was that the Warlord was jacked, which he was. He was jacked (laughs) all the way to the gills. Um, Yeah. Slick had a shoe off at one point to try to hit Tito with it. Piper called it chemical warfare. I thought that was kind of funny. (laughs) Um, And Warlord won. But you mentioned Survivor Series. Because after this match, Vince McMahon went on this promo about Survivor Series. And to me... It felt it felt odd because we know how WWE is today. They have a pay per view every month, but back in 1990, that wasn't the case. They had four pay per views a year. They still only had WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Survivor Series, and the Royal Rumble. This is only the third SummerSlam, and Survivor Series I think was probably going into its fourth year. I think um, yeah. that started in '87, I believe. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, he was promoting this pay-per-view. He's like, the next time on pay-per-view isn't until November. And it's like, damn. (laughs) That's a long time from now. But that's how it was back then. And it felt kind of weird that they didn't have a pay-per-view the very next month. Like, they weren't promoting Unforgiven or something like that. It was was November, you know. And it was a Thanksgiving night tradition. Yeah. And that's the funny part because I was always used to a Thanksgiving Eve or whatever, like my first remembrances of Survivor Series. But I ordered this pay-per-view and taped it, Survivor Series 1990. That was Thanksgiving night, and I remember not going anywhere. I think that was when I was still kind of like estranged from the the extended family at that point uh, due to issues. But um, I remember being in my you know South Philly home. Uh, we had dinner, or whatever Thanksgiving, and then boom, we put on the pay per view, and uh, it was a fun night. So you know, I just completely forgot it used to be on Thanksgiving night. That and. Uh... You know, Thanksgiving, we've talked about this in the past, that Thanksgiving night used to be a big night for wrestling back mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas night, probably two of the biggest days of the year uh, before, like, Starcade and uh, Summer, not SummerSlam, WrestleMania existed. Uh, well, Starcade was a Thanksgiving tradition uh, at first, right? That was, like, a, around Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving yeah. night yeah. when it first started, and then it moved to December at some point, but... Uh, but yeah, Thanksgiving night. Now it sounds strange nowadays because Survivor Series is never on Thanksgiving or even like around Thanksgiving. It's right. usually uh, maybe the weekend before or something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, nowadays, back in the day though, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving night, just like football is on Thanksgiving night or all, all day on Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, back in the day, people used to go out. On, they would eat dinner really early, and like you know, four or five o'clock at the, you know at the latest. Um, and then go out that night to see something happening, movie, you know, sporting event or mm-hmm. wrestling event. Uh, what time? What, what's, what's your Thanksgiving time? Thanksgiving dinner time for you? Was traditionally? Uh, probably like three or four, and so we we'll get there a little early, watch some football, uh, eat around three or four, and just kind of like eat through the day. You know, go back for seconds if you want. Mm-hmm thirds for us and then we have the desserts you know a little not too long after the main so by the by nine o'clock ten o'clock we're usually getting out and going home because uh mm. you know with my extended family we don't like stay there till like midnight or anything <laughs> <laughs> not my side of the family we ain't crazy <laughs> the other side uh we See, you know, we grow up, you know, different types of households. Yours being a white household and mine's being a black household. That's the main <laughs> difference. Uh, <laughs> so as black folks, we tend to eat later. <laughs> so, and I, I don't know if it's just black people or maybe younger people because older people, I feel like some older people like to eat early too. Because, you know, the old fashioned, they eat really early. Yeah. But like, yeah, Italian household, me, you know, we were, especially on Sundays, we'd always eat like two or three o'clock. So Thanksgiving yeah, see, was no different. Early. I never ate that early for dinner, no. It was always like, it's definitely on a Sunday. It was always for Thanksgiving around like maybe six, five or six, I think it's dinner time on Thanksgiving. Because you got time to sit around, hang out. People ain't showing up to somebody's house like two o'clock maybe, right? Noon at the, yeah. maybe noon at the earliest, right? And then, you know, hang out for a little bit, eat some dinner, hang out some more, you know? Yeah, that's how it was around my, around my house or in my family, my prior Thanksgivings, but... Uh, wonder how Thanksgiving's gonna play out this year in 2020. Mm. <laughs> we <laughs> shall see. But next on SummerSlam 1990 was a pretty dope match. 
WWE Tag Team Championship between Demolition and Heart Foundation in a best two out of three falls match. They had their pre-match promos. Demolition yells the entire time. <laughs> I don't know how they didn't need a lozenge like every day because I don't know how their Seriously. throats and their voices held up because it was like ah, yeah, yeah. like I, my throat just hurt right now yeah. doing that yeah. just a little bit. They talk like that for like two or three minutes straight. Like how do they do that? Like it hurts. Yeah, I. It was so weird, you know. I'm just like. Four years old. I'm like, am I gonna grow up sounding like that? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> That's how all adults when they're Bret, mad. Bret Hart sound. sounded like the most normal one out of all of them because the anvil yeah, was going nuts too. Yeah, <laughs> he's just. Like, ha, 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 they made me to think. Yeah. They pay me to beat people up or whatever you say. <laughs> Bret Hart's like, like settle down, anvil, settle down. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like, okay, okay, I'm cool, I'm cool. Yeah, you're right. You're right. He's just geeking out. But um, also what Bret Hart said, he quoted Phil Collins at the end of his promo, and it was kind of whack. <laughs> like, like, that quote he used was trash. I'm like, Bret, that was – look, I know talking wasn't his strong suit, but that was a crappy way to end that promo. <laughs> it was just so you know, whack. He, he even got the the names wrong of Demolition because I guess this might have been pre-taped. I don't know how many – original plans were thrown out the window but this was before the heart foundation came out so demolition had already come out and then they aired yeah. the promo with the heart foundation it's yep. at it's smash and crush as mm-hmm. two members of demolition well bret hart says axe and crush in his promo Aww. so i always thought that was weird too and i i i held on to that at four years old i was just like but that's not axe that's smash so you know, these things coming back to me, I always think something's weird, but then I just let it go because it's like, well, clearly it's not that important because no one else is making a big deal about it. But it so, is. It's a continuity thing. That's just it so is. simple. But like, I'm saying, like, you know, back then, I'm I'm watching, you know, the VHS three months later, and I'm like, but that's not Axe. Axe was not in the match. What the hell's going on? <laughs> not at all. But like I guess said, it didn't it matter. Crushing, <laughs> it was crushing the Smash who came out to – Probably top ten greatest theme music in WWE history. Demolition's theme music was fire. It was a certified bop to this day. Yep. Like I'm still yep. when I listen to it, I'm still bobbing my head and tapping my toes. <laughs> I'm like, yo, this this song is dope. Here comes the X. Here comes Smasher. Like, bro, this is dope. Like, I love Jim Johnston. Give him all the flowers. He was all dope, man. He was so good. You know what else is dope? What's that? Heart Foundation's jackets. I don't know why. The very but first like time they wore them. It you was. Well, they should have. They were, they were great. They were like they suede were. They were. or like crushed velvet or something like that. They were great. I don't, I don't know. I liked them. I, the, the tassels on the shoulders and all that. Like, it gave them something new. Yeah. It, it kind of. I was. That's what I, I was gravitated towards that too. I was like, man, these wrestlers wear some things that, you know, you don't see every day. And. And the only time I saw shoulder pads was like when my mom would wear like a coat or something that had shoulder pads in them. So I see these shoulder pads that are just with the tassels on them. And I was just like, man, that looks cool. Shoulder pads were, for those who don't remember, if you're too young to remember, shoulder pads, big deal back in the day. (laughs) Like you said, (laughs) all the women had them and they're like their pantsuits, stuff like that, whatever, and their blazers. 
And all the men had it too. Everybody's walking around looking like linebackers. It was great. It was a great time <laughs> in fashion. And you saw the shoulder pads that the Hart Foundation had at Summer Sun 1990, which honestly, I think that look, that jacket could probably be pulled off today. I don't know. Like, just like a yeah, regular definitely. fashion. Definitely. Not like wrestling. I don't know. I, I, I dug those jackets. I don't know why. I'm with you. I'm with like, you. I feel like you can see them on the runway somewhere. <laughs> That's just me. And I, I watched like one fashion show with my girlfriend, like not that long ago on Netflix. So now I'm, I feel like I'm like a kind of was it the one Rick Martel went to? No, <laughs> no, it was like a re- it was like a reality show. It was like a game show, a competition <laughs> show. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, uh, dang, I can't remember. But it was pretty good though, and I watched the whole thing. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of, I'm not gonna pat myself on the back too hard. I think, I think, I kind of got an eye for fashion, but that's just <laughs> what I think. You know what I'm saying? And I appreciated the Heart Foundation's aesthetic on this night. What I did not appreciate at any point was Demolition's aesthetic. Who the hell came up with that? Who came up with this BDSM dominatrix looking stuff that <laughs> Demolition came out with? What? What? Uh, I I don't know if I want to know. Um who, I just, I just want to know who. I, I understand what the inspiration was behind it. Clear. <laughs> like, you take one look at Demolition, you know what the look they're going for. Uh, yeah, but I, the I, look, I, I, they got paid. More power yeah. to them. But I just want to know who, <laughs> who, who's a freak body that came up with that. <laughs> and what are they into? Vince McMahon. <laughs> look, I would not be surprised. I just, I just want to know. They were like one step away from having like the ball gag in their mouth. Like that's what they look like. <laughs> I wonder if that's what was attached to their masks from the inside. Maybe. Like they look like the team from uh what was Dodgeball? Remember the one team yeah, they, they got they yeah, switched their clothes yeah. and they came see, out I actually watched that. Yeah. Look at that. You watch Dodgeball, but you've never seen <laughs> any of the other movies I've told you about. <laughs> I believe no, no. I even bought that one on DVD. Of course you did. Dodgeball is a good movie, though. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, See, so yeah, Dave Militia comes out in their weird aesthetic. Oh, by the way, I, I mentioned Phil Collins earlier and Bret Hart quoting Phil Collins. Phil Collins, still dope to this day. Um, Got to give yep. a shout-out. Big ups to Phil Collins, yep. by the way. But um, uh, two out of three falls. So, naturally, the heels get the first fall. Demolition wins. But the second fall, Demolition, for some reason get disqualified, stupidly get disqualified after they picked up Earl Hebner to try to interrupt the three count. <laughs> they should have what, threw him outside the ring. Why would that be the, the way to do it? You could just hit the wrestler. Why would you pick up pick up the referee? They should have threw him outside the ring. They threw That's him in the crowd. That's, look, leave Earl. baby Earl alone, man. <laughs> leave him alone. It was hilarious the way they picked him up, though. Like, he, I think Crush was the one that stopped the count after they did the heart attack finisher to smash. And then yeah, he, yeah. he, like, brought him over there. Like, he thought he was doing something. <laughs> and, just, and Earl right away was like, no, 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 no. Ring that bell. <laughs> <laughs> he just picked him up and sat him down. I was like, okay, sir, here you go right here. You're going to stop counting to three. Thank you. And, and he's like, no, sir, you're disqualified. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I can think about, which is weird, but especially in a two out of three falls match, that they didn't want Demolition taking two falls 
in a row uh, when they're ready to go in a feud with LOD. I mean, that's the only thing I came up with, which was still stupid. But. It makes sense, but it could have been a little bit more of a sensible, more, maybe more of a badass way to, to accomplish that. <laughs> Instead of just some, like picking Earl Hebner up like a baby doll <laughs> and sitting him in the corner. Like, a baby doll. <laughs> they did. They uh, just picked him up. Like, literally, literally, me and my baby Earl. I'm gonna go to the corner now. Like what? Like, <laughs> and Earl was just like super calm too. He wasn't like put me down, nothing like that. Right. He just like, okay, well, all right. As soon as you put me down, I'm gonna ring the bell because you are an idiot. So <laughs> disqualification. Uh, around this point though, when things get tied up, Axe, who you mentioned earlier, was not in the match because the stipulation was that only two members of Demolition were allowed. At ringside, where Axe sneaks his way down, hides under the ring, then he eventually comes in and switches with, I believe, Smash. Yep. Right? Switches with Smash and jumps in and beats the hell out of Bret Hart because he's fresh and Bret Hart has already gone through two falls of a match, including he did the turnbuckle spot with Bret Hart, where Bret Hart ran and was into the turnbuckle chest first. And man, every time Bret Hart made that look like it was the worst thing in the world. Like he made it look so painful. Yep. And I'm, I'm obviously it couldn't have been that painful because he wouldn't have done it to himself so much. <laughs> but he he it, it looked like he got shot by a gun every time he took that turnbuckle spot. It was great. Yeah, yeah, that was so, one of the main things I remember about him growing up. I was like, damn, like he's the only one that does that because nobody else did that. And no. you know, it sounded a lot worse than you know, like than any other person that would turn to their back and go into it. It just the sound it made, the ring shook like crazy. I was like, how does, how is he not being pinned one, two, three after that? Like, damn. And look, I, I'm only assuming it wasn't that painful. I mean, it probably it right. could have been, right? but I'm just assuming because he did it throughout his entire career. And I know Bret Hart has always prided himself on being safe. I would assume he would be just as safe with himself as he would with somebody else. So... I would assume that he wouldn't just throw himself into the turnbuckle and break his sternum, crack his sternum every <laughs> night. Because <laughs> that looked yeah. like he did. It looked like he cracked his sternum every single night. Yeah. So I would assume that wasn't the case, though. Uh, but again, he made it look fantastic, which is one of the reasons why Bret Hart is one of the greatest of all time, because he could do stuff like that on a nightly basis. Um, eventually, Legion of Doom come out, Road Warriors. They get yet another massive pop. They, they helped the Heart Foundation win. Someone yells, son of a bitch, and that's it. The crowd goes crazy. <laughs> and I don't know who yelled that. I think it was uh, Axe from Demolition. Like, just yelled it and came through on the mics. I heard it in my headphones. Uh, but the crowd was going nuts. I just recall that. Like, the crowd was going crazy yep. when they got the win. Yep. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Everybody was happy, including me, when I saw those Oh, so beautiful. World Tag Team Titles. Man. <laughs> the very best that they've had. They're the best tag titles in wrestling history, period. I'm confident in that. I don't think WCW, <laughs> NWA, ECW, no promotion has had better tag team championships than no specific world tag team titles that WWF had from the mid-80s to, what, 2002? I think they got rid of them, 2001? Yeah, they even introduced like a new they, when they introduced the new titles in '98. I think they just kept the same design as the tag titles. They made them a little smaller, which was stupid. Yeah. But which was a mistake. Um, yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, 
but yeah, I think once the brand split really, or maybe it might've been before the brand split, the initial brand split, but yeah, definitely top design. I won't argue with you there. They look so good. Yeah. So right after the match, we get a promo for WrestleMania 7. We got to save that. We got to save that. I got to go back to this match. Okay. I was so pissed off that they acted like Axe and Smash looked alike. (laughs) They kind of did, though. I didn't tell them Not to me. Not to me. Smash has long hair. Axe has the shortest hair of everyone, and That's nobody true. noticed. That's true. Earl Hebner right. didn't notice. He looked right oh. in his eyes. Oh, my God. And Vince McMahon didn't notice. I, I understand what he's trying to do, but come come on. Or Roddy Piper. Or Vince McMahon's actually the only one that did notice. Roddy Piper was sitting there like, that's, that's Axe in the ring. And Roddy Piper would be like, how do you know? Like, what makes you so sure that's Axe? Like, <laughs> you know, just trying to play it. And Vince McMahon's like, I think it's pretty obvious that's Axe or you know, stuff like that. So, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm just like, the ref can't tell the difference? Like, get the hell out of here. And then when the Legion of Doom came down with their with their spikes for some reason, they took them out like that small-ass aisle way. What if they poked someone's eye out <laughs> with their pads? Like, come on. They should have just came down without the pads on. Like, well, why even put them on? But No, you got to have the pads, man. That's part of the look. <laughs> that was a cool aesthetic. It, it they was. look like badasses yeah. with demolition. Like they were in for a wild night that I don't yeah. want to even describe in any detail. <laughs> uh, you know, hey, more power too. That's what you're into. Hey, fine. You know, and but, some people get paid to make. They make good money doing it too. I ain't going. Hey, I ain't mad at them. I'm just saying it was. It was not look for a badass tag team. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know. They're saying, like, Smash and Crush look more alike than any of them because they have long hair, and I guess their face paint was similar. But, but Crush is, like, twice their size. Yeah, like, but <laughs> he Sma- stood out. Smash is, I think, closer to Crush than he is Axe, but whatever. But it was just really frustrating because even as a four-year-old, you know, they explain things pretty well to me, and I, I'm like, I know that's Axe, so why are they so confused on TV? <laughs> like, I was just really confused, but... Um, Obviously, four years old. I'm like everyone knows more and better than I do. So maybe there's a reason for this crap. I'll say this: when I was watching it last night into today, I maybe I just didn't pay enough attention because I'm also like taking notes and stuff like that. So I was just kind of listening to what they were saying in some parts, and yeah, I was like, hey, I can buy it. But when now that you mention it, yeah, that. They, they don't look alike. <laughs> They're just kind of the same size, but that's about it. Like, yeah, I'll, it. I'll give them size, but you know, when your your hair is clearly different and the face paint is clearly different. Um, yeah. At least... They wore different face paint just so you can tell them apart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For that specific reason. <laughs> and I was so, always yeah. a big a bigger fan of Smash anyway. I don't know why. Maybe it was the wrestling figure. I thought it, the wrestling figure, the Hasbro figure, was a lot cooler than... I thought Smash was a lot cooler than Axe, so maybe in real life I just like Smash You're more. But Barry Darso, Barry Mark, Darso, huh? man. All right, all right. Also the Repo Man. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what was his Crusher Khrushchev in NWA when he was with the Russians? That's right. That's right. Yeah, there you go. It's very uh, very uh, elaborate. Not elaborate, but just very extensive career from. Uh, he did. He did. 
Our boy uh, Barry Darso. Shout out to Barry Darso. Yeah, he Give just came back to WCW. I'm watching some 98 Nitros, and he's back. As Get, beat by Goldberg. <laughs> he was just Barry Darso? Yeah, before his uh, miniature golf gimmick. Oh. Yeah. There you go. Uh, after the match, as I said earlier, we got a promo for WrestleMania 7 for the L.A. Coliseum. Here WWE we go. Expect- <laughs> WWE is expecting over 100,000 people in a Coliseum. fans. Oh, yeah. You, you can't miss it. They're showing the trucks going down the road, all yeah. the different promos. WrestleMania 7, baby, in the Coliseum. Whoops. No, it's not in the Coliseum. That didn't happen. <laughs> oh, man. And I, the reason why WrestleMania 7 wasn't in the Coliseum, still to this day, is debated amongst fans. Because uh, there's a camp that says WWE flat out just didn't sell enough tickets, which is like kind of odd when you think about it. Because by the after, the next year in WrestleMania 8, they had put 60,000 in the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis. <laughs> yep. Just earlier in 1990, they put another 60,000 in the Sky Dome in Toronto. Yeah, the year before, yep. So it wasn't like the product just fell off a cliff in 1991, 1990 into 1991 and then came back up in 92. I don't know what actually happened because the other side is that, I think Bruce Pritchard has said this on his podcast, is that uh, there was a security issue and... They couldn't secure the Coliseum or something like that because this was right as the Gulf War was starting in 1990 into 1991. And, you know, the Super Bowl, I know the Super Bowl was heavily secured uh, and heavily guarded in 1991, you know, right after that Gulf War was really kicking off or that giants Bills Super Bowl. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe they kind of they weren't able to do what the Super Bowl was able to do. Don't know, but still up in the air. Um, still to this day, whether why they couldn't run the Coliseum and get a hundred thousand people like they wanted to, they had to run the LA Sports Arena, uh, which wasn't even like the, the Western Forum. That wasn't like the top arena in LA, I don't think. <laughs> um, and it wasn't even where the Lakers played. Um, but they got like seventeen thousand people in there, and much less than the hundred thousand they wanted. But you know. It's been debated, still debated to this day. I don't, did you have any thoughts on that, Nick? Uh, no, it would have been a great visual seeing it in, LA, in the LA it Memorial would've. Coliseum. That would have been awesome. It would have been the first event I ever saw that was outdoors, really. I mean, WrestleMania Six was in a dome, so to me, when I watched it, it didn't have, like, I didn't see, like, the outdoors nature of it. I wasn't really watching sports then, so I didn't know what a stadium really looked like on TV. Um, and I didn't even really put two and two together until many years later. Wembley Stadium, SummerSlam 92, I think was really my first event that I watched outdoors. Uh, so I don't know. It would have been really cool if WrestleMania 7 was in the Memorial Coliseum. It would have been like watching the promo and listening to it versus watching WrestleMania 7 in the LA sports arena. Uh, I didn't put two and two together. I didn't realize there was really a difference until many years later. And then, you know, obviously I looked it up the same way you did. And, you know, the discrepancy between, you know, oh, there weren't enough tickets versus a security threat. Um, So it's a very interesting story. And, uh, 
know, it's probably all had to do, a lot of it had to do with Sergeant Slaughter and his character at the time. If they couldn't really, I don't know why they wouldn't be able to, but if they couldn't make sure he was safe, then they did the right thing and just move it. But it would have been really cool to know. see that. I don't I don't know if that it was it was just Sergeant Slaughter specifically or just the whole event. Well, I don't think that you know Ultimate Warrior gets a bad rap. Oh, he was a bad draws champion, but was it really his fault? Because uh, you know the whole angle they went with played off the real life Persian Gulf War. I, I figured you know the Ultimate Warrior is not involved in that, so why would you <laughs> like you gave Warrior that run for almost a year, and, and so and it put still- it back on Hogan. Still doing pretty good business. I mean, they're sold out in Philly for SummerSlam yeah. with Ultimate Warrior yeah. on top. Again, you mentioned I mentioned ninety two WrestleMania eight sixty thousand in the Hoosier Dome. Yeah, and like you just said, London Wembley Stadium like eighty ninety thousand. Mm. That's over a hundred fifty thousand people damn near uh, between those two events in ninety two, like a year after WrestleMania seven. So I don't know how all of a sudden and and it, like logically speaking, obviously it could have been the case, and and, and I could be wrong, but just logically and seeing. The trajectory of WWE's major events from WrestleMania six sixty some odd thousand. Obviously, it's not a hundred thousand, but you know, you can only fit how many people you got in the building. So sixty some odd thousand people. WrestleMania eight, the, the year after WrestleMania seven, sixty some odd thousand. Wembley Stadium, just a couple months later, eighty some odd thousands. Like, how did they not? How were they not able to sell enough tickets to get right. WrestleMania seven to at least? 60 or 70 or 80,000 and then maybe you tarp off the rest like right. that you or don't just sell give them and away. maybe you can't get to 100 <laughs> right cuz or yeah like you said or give them away or have sell them really cheap or whatever uh maybe you do some corporate type of stuff and have corporate sponsors get the tickets or something i don't know like it just feels like that 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 could have happened you know if, i don't know i mean like 60,000 people at the coliseum does look bad. I mean, we've seen football games there where there are like 60,000, 70,000, <laughs> yeah. but they don't fill up the stadium because the stadium is really, really big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but I don't know. It's just, it's still a thing that even though Bruce Pritchard said it was a security thing, I still think people dispute that and believe that it's a ticket thing. I don't know necessarily what to believe. I'm just here to give you what I think as far as like the logic behind it. And both sides, I guess. But it's still it's still something that, you know, like I said, people still talk about to this day. And it's always funny to see these promos for WrestleMania 7. Because uh, you see them during WrestleMania 6, too. Um, for the next year's WrestleMania. And you see them here at SummerSlam talking about, oh, 100,000 people. Big mm-hmm. WrestleMania. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that never even happened. And it's always <laughs> a good talking point. Um, next, after that promo, we get a Road Warriors promo. Uh, and I just always love the Road Warriors promos because uh, they yell a lot too, and I don't know how their voices held up. But then you always have to go from Animal to Hawk, and Animal goes, "Tell him Hawk," <laughs> <laughs> and then the Animal goes, "Well," <laughs> and he goes into this thing. And I always thought that was really funny because they did that all the time. And then they cut the promo with um, the Heart Foundation. They came in with those beautiful belts. But one thing I noticed from this promo. I was looking at Jim Neidhart when he was talking, and for the first time, for the first time, I was like, damn, Natalia looks exactly like her dad. <laughs> like, I saw Natalia in his face, and I hadn't really thought about that before. I hadn't really looked. But when I saw Jim Neidhart talking in this promo, 
I was like, Natalia looks just like her dad. <laughs> like, they had the same kind of, like, expression and stuff like that. So I just thought that was interesting. And that Hawk rubbed uh, Jim Neihart's beard uh, <laughs> at the end great. of the promo. I thought that was funny. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> or were... goatee, I should say. It was like, like yeah, a long yeah. goatee. And it's so, like, so weird, you know, unless you're, like, in there, I guess. So I'm watching wrestling, and I'm like, man, these guys do weird crap, but it's funny. You know, like, <laughs> four years old, you know, this, like, you know, 20 years later, am I going to go up to the guy and, like, rub his goatee the way Hawk did to the anvil? But it was just so funny. Like, this, it, unintentionally un, un funny, I should say. So, just cracked me up. Yeah, I thought that was uh, <laughs> just a funny moment. It's just like, oh, <laughs> Hawk rubbing uh, Jim Nyhart's beard, or goatee, I should say, at the end of the promo. I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, but that's, yeah, that's those little things that happens when you don't have a script, you know, and yeah, right. very scripted promos when guys can color outside the lines a little bit. And you saw that little weird moment between Hawk and <laughs> Jim Nighthart. Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of funny. And they were both good guys at least. So, you know, they liked each other. So, all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but next up, <laughs> we get, they're talking about Bad News Brown and his Harlem sewer rats. And they're like, we snuck into Bad News Brown's dressing room and got a look at the sewer rats. And these these dudes, man, WWF. <laughs> Y'all literally just put a camera up to a cage that literally had a fake rat in the damn cage. Was shined the light on it and cut away from it. Was it fake? <laughs> It, that come on, that thing was either fake or it was dead taxidermy Ta- tax- rat. <laughs> that was exactly what I was gonna say. You took the words out of my mouth. That is hilarious. <laughs> that's, that's only that that wasn't a live breathing rat. That's all I know. What the they, hell? Why would you get that close to it? It was clearly fake. They had to make it look scary, man. <laughs> it wasn't scary. It was just. I remember watching like, with the teeth and yeah. I was like, wait, hold up. I had to pause. Like, wait a second. No, they did not. Just shoot this fake ass rat in this cage and it's like ah, but like it doesn't move it's just like, like a <laughs> oh, scary it's, face it's like posing for the picture or something yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's cheese <laughs> i'm like man y'all didn't even try yo that's like and i just for whatever reason i got a flashback to eric rowan and his stupid uh, cage yeah. thing yep which honestly was much worse than Bad News Brown's fake rat. <laughs> At least that rat looked like an actual rat. <laughs> what was Eric Rowan's like a giant spider that they just murdered? Man, I don't TV. even remember. How crazy is that? I don't even remember how they paid it off, and it was not that long ago. I, I want to say Braun Strowman or somebody like killed it. Okay. But it was I after, like, didn't Rowan get attacked himself by it or something? Or <laughs> in his hand no, a couple times? No, no. Then... He would show it to people and they would get, like, scared or something. Didn't it attack somebody's face? Or my... Maybe I dreamt that because <laughs> I wanted to end the storyline, so I wrote it myself. I I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I, honestly, I couldn't tell you. It's just... <sighs> just another terrible, terrible storyline from WWE. Uh, you know, somehow it wasn't. Uh, this was slightly better. They, he, he said he had two hundred pounds of of rats. 
200 pounds of Harlem, specifically Harlem, Harlem sewer rats, because yep. Bad News Brown is from New York. I got to say, though, the rats in New York, if you've seen some New York rats, they are just humongous. I've like, heard. they are small dogs yeah. running around. Yeah, and some people, I've seen the documentary where some people actually hunt these rats with small dogs. <laughs> it's wow. odd. It's very odd. But, uh, but yeah, New York rats are big, but Bad News Brown is walking around with 200 pounds worth of rats because he was afraid of snakes. That was the whole thing. <laughs> He's going against Jake Roberts. Yeah. He is afraid of snakes. Uh, <laughs> well, how about... Then, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, or are you going to talk about Damien just chilling in yeah, the shower? Just, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Was his mouth like, open? I don't Did, know. It's just uh, weird. I want, it's just like, I want you to go back there after this because there's a moment where I was just kind of like... I don't know where the head is and where the tail is. You know, I'm four years old. I don't really know snakes that well. And then to, when I was watching it, it I, I think the head had like the mouth open, like the rat had the mouth open a little bit. And well, I think Damien had his mouth open. Like he was, it was supposed to be like a relaxing thing. So I, I need to go back there because I, when I paused it, I couldn't really get a good look. So, you know, I needed to watch the rest of the show. So I didn't like spend too much time on it, but I want you to go back, see if you saw what I saw. Cause it looked like maybe Damien's mouth was wide open too. It was just so Man. weird. It was just weird. Let's get a, let's get a glimpse of the rats. <laughs> yeah. Now let's get a glimpse of Damien, and he's just sitting there, chilling in the shower, in the shower. just hanging, because that's what snakes do. It's like, what, what the hell were they expecting? The snake to like jump at the camera or something? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> that was such a weird way to build this match. Um, just hanging in the shower, just 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 hanging. Um, I think this is like intermission, right? Because I think we got a bunch of promos at this point. Because then yeah. we got. Jim Duggan and Nikolai Volkov, they're like a tag team now because the U.S. and the Soviet Union were like like cool with each other all of a sudden because yeah. of the Gulf War. Yeah. So now, of course, they got to be cool with each other. Just WWE and his patriotism is just all over the place. You know, you know what's hilarious, though? Did he catch what Nikolai Volkov said at the end? They're talking oh, about the Orient, going against the Orient Express, which was oh, the Oh, my name God, what did he say? And he said... This is the American Express, and don't leave home without it. As a playoff of wow. the Mastercard American Express, and I, wow. I chuckled. I chuckled because that was good, Nikolai. That, that's what I'm saying. Like he didn't, he wasn't blatantly racist. He was just like, oh yeah, well we're the <laughs> Amer- American Express, and don't leave home without it. Like, and All I right. didn't know All what right. he said until like I rewound it, and I'm because it, it's hard to understand the accents even back then when I was a kid. So I really didn't listened to a lot of the promos that I couldn't understand. And there were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. <laughs> and so I went back to this one and I rewound and I, I was like, what did he say? And he said, this is the American Express and don't leave home without it. And I started cracking up. Nikolai Volkov, by the way. Rest in peace, Nikolai Volkov. Yes. My first uh, ever forced... wrestling signature autograph, I go. should say. Yeah. Nikolai Volkov. And he, uh, I was fortunate enough to interview him at WrestleMania in 2015 when it was in santa clara i interviewed him at uh what was it wrestlemania access and it was good it was a good interview because that was the year that rusev was making this like his wrestlemania debut and they were really playing up the whole russian angle like you know he was with vladimir putin yeah and he came out in the tank and all that and i was just like interested like to get his thoughts about being a russian heel 
foreign menace heel type of guy, and you know, and, and during his day, because he would come out and sing the national anthem and all the time and do it very obnoxiously, the Russian national anthem, I should say. And um, so yeah, it was interesting. But yeah, he was a nice, very nice man, and uh, I enjoyed the interview. So uh, shout out, and, uh, rest in peace to Nikolai. Volkov. Also, rest in peace to Dino Bravo because he was yeah. with Earthquake during their promo. And uh, I don't, you know, for those who are unfamiliar, there's a a uh, whole Dark Side of the Ring documentary about Dino Bravo and the mystery surrounding his death because he was murdered, and a lot of speculation as about who murdered him or why he was murdered. But you know, if you wanted more information on that or just at least some uh, speculation or theories on that, go watch the. Dark Side of the Ring documentary on him uh, from Vice. Uh, yeah, it's very good. Too. It's like, damn, just... go ahead. I was saying that was very good, uh, Dark Side of the Ring documentary on him. Yeah. It was a lot of things that I had, uh, you know, I already researched that and did some reading, so they just kind of put it in a nice little one-hour package. Because, you know, you, one Google search can help you look up how Dino Bravo died, but like you said, that that documentary definitely helped provide some details. It still didn't, you know. Right, and they interview, you know, people that might have not had anything to say from whatever I read, so. Right, because I remember reading on Google, like, oh, he was selling cigarettes or something like that, and I was like, oh, that's that's a strange thing. But then you look at the dark side of the ring, and you realize that they talk about the cigarette trade in Montreal and Quebec at that point was like a big deal. Like, it was, like, a, a big moneymaker for, you know, legal crime yeah. syndicates, and he probably got caught up, and, you know, one thing led to another, and unfortunately, he was, you know, murdered in his own house. So, uh, yeah, Dino Bravo, so rest in peace to him. Also, another rest in peace, a lot of rest in pieces on this show, unfortunately. Uh, Earthquake. Earthquake, man, what... What a character Earthquake was. Man, I was but scared of funny, him. Like, literally scared of him. He was the first heel I was, like, scared of. <laughs> I mean, look, you had every right to be scared of Earthquake. He damn near killed Hulk Hogan on TV. <laughs> like, who, the way who he talked, like, I was like, man. And just he was big, and he would go back and forth and kind of, like, rock. But I look, was like, damn. I ain't messing one, with that guy. Who, who put Hulk Hogan in as vulnerable of a position than Earthquake did? I don't think anybody did. Maybe Kid Kong Bundy? But I don't think, I don't remember Andre the Giant doing as much damage to Hogan as Earthquake did. Wow. And that was, that was a, that was a heavy angle for 1990. Yeah. Uh, when he was doing the Earthquake splash to him. I mean, that was a big deal. That was heavy. And Hogan was all <laughs> you know, messed up and on the stretcher. Like, yep. you know, that was, that was some heavy stuff. But you talk about him rumbling <laughs> during his promos. He just yeah. constantly rumble back and forth because he's an earthquake. So he's got to yeah. do the step thing. Oh, you know, that's a Vince McMahon thing. Like, all right, you're an earthquake. <laughs> and while you're talking, you're constantly rumbling. You're constantly making the ground shake. So you got to rumble back and forth while you're talking. It's just like he looks so silly doing this. <laughs> he really does. Like, because everyone else is still and he's the only <laughs> yeah. one moving. So. <laughs> And he's like serious and like menacing and like he's already serious and menacing enough just by looking at him. Like he's like six, whatever, six, five, 300 plus pounds, like big dude. And as accomplished athlete back in the day, too, I, uh, I got to uh, look it up. But I know he was like, a, I think he's a wrestler and a football player at LSU. Um, 
So he's an accomplished athlete. You don't need to really the extra stuff. Like you don't need him to rumble <laughs> back and forth because he's an earthquake. Like, we get it. He's earthquake. Like it's just like it's just so stupid. He's just standing there like really like yelling and but he's still like bouncing back and forth. <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm surprised <laughs> they didn't have like the interviewer move and kind of like shake a little bit with him just to kind of right, give off that vibe. Every time, like, oh, he's shaking the floor. <laughs> right, because every time he gets in the ring, he jumps up and yeah. down. And everybody in the ring sells it as if it's an actual earthquake. They're like, whoa, whoa, watch out now. <laughs> but when he's in the interview, he's, he's not jumping per se, but he's still like rocking. <laughs> he's yeah. still doing the, the earthquake rumble, I guess you could say, or tremor, aftershock. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it was just funny. It was just really <laughs> silly to look at. Um, the complete opposite of the rumbling and the yelling and the screaming was Jake the Snake Roberts, who... <laughs> was quiet and calm and cool and collected and that's what set them apart from all the other people talking on WWE shows who babyface, heel, whatever, they talked really fast, it was super intense, they were yelling, they was they were flexing and you know, swinging a nightstick around in the case of Big Boss Man, but Jake, he just had a snake and he looked into the camera, he talked quietly and it worked. And it was good. Yeah. I was a big fan of that. Yeah. In hindsight, he stood out so much more than the road warriors. Tell him, Hawk! Right. <laughs> Do you want to know what I wasn't a big fan of? What's that? Damien wrapping his entire body around Jake Roberts' neck during his promo. <laughs> Damien don't care, bro. He's trying to kill people. <laughs> he's trying to wrap his he's trying to wrap himself around Even somebody. His odor? Come on, man. Don't give a uh, damn. He's a snake. That's he, why he's a snake. Man, it kept doing it, and Jake was trying to remove it, and he did it like twice, I think, and then he just said, "Screw it, I'm going to finish the promo." And then Damien has his tail like around his entire face, like his nose and eyes and everything, <laughs> and I'm just like, "Yo, that's creepy, man." But like Jake Roberts is a good guy, so maybe I shouldn't be afraid of snakes. Like I don't know, <laughs> but I don't know. Be I will say. 34 years old, I'm still afraid of snakes. So Be afraid of the giant boa constrictor. Maybe you should be afraid of that. <laughs> it was just crazy, snake. man. It was crazy. Yeah. Walking around with a damn animal. Live animal. <laughs> it's funny, though. Jake Roberts, if you if they had a pool of, like, who would live the longest on this show, Jake Roberts would have got no votes. Like, it would have been, like, because his lifestyle it just wouldn't have, like, oh, he's for sure going to die soon. And then, and then, I don't mean to sound morbid, but Instead, he's still here, fortunately for him. Yeah. And there's so many yeah. others on the show, like I said, who have passed on for a variety of reasons. And despite Jake Roberts doing whatever he could back in the day to pretty much destroy himself in a variety of ways, he's still here, still surviving, and more power to him, man, and good for him. Because, like I said, you know, see everybody else in the show, a lot of people have died young, far before their time. Like I just talked about Earthquake, Dino Bravo... Uh, Hawk, you know, Ultimate Warrior, Macho Man, Sherry. I mean, so many others that are on this show. Uh, Piper. I mean, yeah. you know, a lot of people, and it's and it's sad. But Jake Roberts still kicking, man, still fighting on. Uh, but another man that he's going up against that, he, that also passed away is Bad News Brown, man. Mm. Like another guy that just you know gone and the special referee for this match, Big Boss Man. I don't know why he's a special referee for this match, but there he was. But Bad News Brown. Let's talk about Bad News Brown. 
shall we? Let's. He was a badass. <laughs> he didn't give two craps about anybody. <laughs> his character, I'm not sure in real life. <laughs> but I'm he saying, was like, even badass. his friends, he was just like, whatever. His, 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 in real life, he, he would have whooped everybody's ass. For one, for those who <laughs> don't know, Bad News Brown was a very accomplished and decorated judo player in the 70s. So much so that he competed in the 1976 Olympics and won a bronze medal. And according to my research, he was the first African-American to win a solo Olympic medal outside of boxing and track and field. If that's the wow. case, wow. that's wild. That's historic. Now, it was a bronze medal. It wasn't a gold medal, but... Because usually, you know, before, you know, to you know, probably to this day, we dominate African-Americans in, you know, in the U.S., boxing and track and field and, of course, basketball. But that's not a, that's a team sport. This is, you know, solo medal. Um, but apparently, Bad News Brown was the first African-American to win a solo medal outside of boxing and track and field in the Olympics. He did so in 1976 in judo. Again, a bronze medal. Um, I wonder why Vince McMahon didn't push that narrative. uh, Because it was a much easier narrative to push him as a Harlem, a badass from Harlem who did the ghetto blaster Mm. instead. Mm. Much easier. You know. Gotta play those stereotypes, man. Come on. (sighs) Of course. Um, hmm. I don't know if you had any notes from this match. I just had that Jake was very over as a baby face. Yeah, they were chanting like DDT, like and I don't I don't know if that was so much as they hated Bad News Brown or they loved Jake, but No. That that happened that was Jake. Jake was over as yeah. a babyface. Yeah, and I think this was the big face. boss man's first like really turn. I, I don't know if he was a babyface before this, but I know he was coming back and he w- he lost a lot of weight and this might have been his first real inclination that he he's a baby face because i kind of remember i don't i don't remember word for word but i think vince was kind of like let's see how the big boss man's going to play this match will he be right down the middle type of stuff so they were kind of questioning whether he would call it right down the middle and for me everything i've ever known about the big boss man was he was he stood for right you know 1990, 1991, 1992, WWF, before he went to WCW, like he was always a good guy. So uh, it was interesting. I never knew that he was a bad guy until a lot later. So them kind of playing up, you know, how how's he going to call this match was interesting to me. He called it straight down the middle until, I guess, the, you know, uh, Bad News Brown. Yeah. Uh, tried to kill Damien. He tried to kill him <laughs> in the middle of the ring. Because before that, uh, Bad News Brown got himself disqualified because he used a chair uh, on Jake. Uh, was, you know, very short match, not much happening. Um, but, you know, again, Bad News Brown tried to kill Damien. <laughs> Big boss man swooped in for the rescue. Thank goodness. Couldn't have that. Uh, but Earthquake later did kill Damien. It's a shame. Um <laughs> <laughs> that dastardly earthquake um, is rumbling back and forth at all times. Uh, Bad News Brown then attacked Big Boss Man. While that was happening, Jake the Snake got a hold of the snake, Damien, tossed it on Bad News Brown, who was like, ah, and ran away because he was afraid of snakes, remember? 
Yeah, and he, he's like running up the aisleway, still like moving his arms around trying to wipe any snake like fluid off him. Just cracked me up. He he sold it really well. Hey man, if you're afraid of something, I guess you know. Hey, I'm not saying I wouldn't do the same damn thing because I am <laughs> right. not. I am not a snake guy. Bad news, Brown. Let's give you know he unfortunately passed on in 2007. But Alan James Coage, Coage, uh, legend, straight up legend, man. And he was you know, in judo, winning Olympic medals and pro wrestling all over the all over the world. Big ups to Bad News Brown, uh, and you know Big Boss Man, by the way, too. Don't forget Big Boss Man. Uh, after the match, we get another WrestleMania 7 promo. Still funny to see those promos, knowing what actually happened in 1991. Uh, then we did it, get a demolition promo, which, again, those, those their voices, I, don't, I just don't know how they survived one promo with their the way they talked. <laughs> I just, you need, like, a Ricola or something after that. Like, it just needs some type of lozenge to get your voice back. Drink, I, I guess they drink a lot of tea. No. I don't know if there's some alcohol on that tea, but they drink, they had to drink a lot of tea because their voices were, had to be shot after a while, right? You would think. <laughs> you would think. Um, I hate the way they ended their promo, though, because <laughs> what I think it was Smash who said, after I'm done with you, Hawk, you'll be <laughs> hawking hot dogs. It's like, what? Bro, come on, man. Right. I get you're trying to say that you're trying to use a hawk term, but like, all right, we could do better than that, right? And then we get uh, for animal, you'll be neutered in no time. I was like, whoa, 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 come on, that's that's not what happens to human beings. Like we don't neuter human beings. Like, understand it's an animal. His name is animal. Blah blah blah. But like, whoa, this is this is going into strange yeah, territory. And those are terms that I had no clue what the hell they meant back then. So this is one of those promos. <laughs> one of the promos that I would just ignore. Uh, when I would put, pop in that VHS, but when I watched it back this time, I started cracking up. I was like, wow, that's bad. How just, could you ignore it? They're just yelling the entire it, time. That's how I ignore it. I'm just like, okay, whatever. Like They're yelling because they're mad they lost. That's all. I don't care what they have to say. They lost. You know, that's just me back then. But uh, with them doing like the whole hawk and animal bit and trying to toss that out, I'm, I'm over it. I was like, man, that was bad. They should have... They should have Split demoni- demolition up right then and there. <laughs> that might have been that. That might have been Axe's. I, I think Axe appeared at Survivor Series, but that might have been the last time he was really part of that. Because Axe was like for a while. He was like injured, just, right? He was like yeah. Like they were like phasing him out. That's the reason why Crush yeah. became a guy. Right. Right. Because he was like kind of banged up and he needed something somebody to replace him. And they brought in Crush. So. There you go. Crush and Crusher Khrushchev on the same team. How about that? <laughs> All right. So after this, we get an appearance from good old Brother Love in the city <laughs> of brotherly love. Uh, I, I always found it funny how many rings he had on. He had on a <laughs> ring on pretty much on each finger. Uh, and the funny thing is, you would think I would have some vague memory or images of this since I apparently was there in, in the audience but uh with all the lighting and putting the red mat down but I, I have no recollection of any different angles of this so when i'm watching this back i just i remember what it was about but him saying that 
you know, city of love and all that. And I'm just love. <laughs> what a character. Sar- Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> um, but this was actually an important segment in the long run because it's pretty much started Sergeant Slaughter and be in his turn, his heel turn, not only on the good guys, but on the whole country of America. Yeah, yeah how about that? Uh, was this his first appearance since he came back? I don't even know if he was like wrestling so. or. I don't. I looked it up. I tried to look it up. I don't. It was think the first was. time I ever saw him. It might have been, but I don't. I don't recall this being the fir- very first. But it could have been, because uh, he you know, he left for a couple years for those don't know because became the yeah. actual GI Joe. Right, <laughs> like, right. He became literally GI Joe, and he played that character, and I'm sure made a lot of money. Uh, doing so then he eventually came back and this is what he did when he came back he became eventually an iraqi sympathizer because wwe as we've mentioned earlier they like to play off of real life events even no matter how ugly they may be and in this case this is a war going on or a war is starting people are dying because just a few weeks before this iraq invaded kuwait and that eventually led to operation desert storm and the gulf war and all hell broke loose over there and it wasn't pretty but yet wwe we got to take advantage we got to get that heat gotta get that heat man gotta get that heat pal and they had slaughter call america soft and eventually he sided with iraq and he legit had like death threats and it was in fear for his life for a little while all in the name of getting heat and they had to blow off at WrestleMania, you know. I don't know if, you know, if it did anything. I mean, it sold out of WrestleMania, but it really, it wasn't like a massive feud that made them a ton of money at the end of the day. It just, you put Sergeant Slaughter's life in danger for what? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they even, and it's funny because I totally forget about SummerSlam the next year. They're still feuding. Like the, with General Adnan, they bring in Colonel Mustafa, the Iron Sheik. And, but like you said, it's not really going anywhere because, after Hogan won the title, nobody cared about Sergeant Slaughter anymore. Right, as you mentioned, the SummerSlam '91, they had the uh, the match made in hell, Hogan <laughs> and Warrior versus the uh, Iraqi sympathizers, and Slaughter was one of them. So, yeah, I don't know what it really did for Slaughter. I mean, for him, he got a WrestleMania main event out of it. Uh, I'm sure he got paid a lot of money. Yeah, but he also had, was in fear for his life a little while. Like <laughs> that couldn't have been cool. No. So, um. But yeah, WWE, stop doing this stuff, man. Like, you don't have to do the whole foreign menace and the whole playing off of real life. Like, not with these type of subjects. You can play off of real life things, but this is this 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 hit a nerve. This is too much of a nerve. Like, this is yeah. too much. Like, people yeah. people's legit lives are being lost in this. Like, you know, I just I just don't know. It just feels weird nowadays because they make all the, back then they made all the foreigners bad guys, as we see in the next yeah. match. The Jim Duggan and Nikolai Volkov, you know, the the U.S. and Soviet connection, I guess, <laughs> uh, going against the Orient Express. For one, Oriental is not a term that people use anymore, but back in 1990, people were still using it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, they were the bad guys. You know why? Because they're not from the United States, so they're bad guys. Um, funny thing in this match, though, before the match, obviously they're in Philadelphia. And they mentioned Kate Smith hmm. before they sang God Bless America, which, mind you, they sung that song horribly. 
they got booed. It was so bad. They were supposed to be the good guys. And people were like, yo, this is trash, trash. Bring out Kate Smith, please. Um, <laughs> Where's the video at? Was she... Uh, she uh, passed away by then, right? I, I'm going to assume so. I can look it up. They had a statue already. Yeah. Um, but, Which they showed during... <laughs> Yes, singing. she died in 1986, <laughs> by the way. She was okay. almost 80 years old. So, yeah, they, they um, showed her statue out there. I was like, oh, hey, that's Philly. <laughs> yeah, because so for those that don't know, Kate Smith was a singer back in like the 30s who, you know, famous singer. And in one game, and I guess before we won the Stanley Cup in 74, she sung God Bless America, and it was like, a big game and we won the game. I don't know if we clinched the cup that day or what. I can't remember exactly, but either way, her rendition of God bless America was famous here in Philly because we won the Stanley cup that season. And it was like a good luck charm for us. Every time we played Kate Smith's rendition of God bless America, we won. It was a good luck charm. And eventually, you know, this, they, they gave her a statue. It's like an eight foot tall statue. Uh, down in the sports complex. You saw it in the video here on Summer Sun 1990. It's outside of the Spectrum. But then they moved it. Once the Spectrum got torn down, they moved it to like a little part of what we call Xfinity Live. It's like a a bar. It's like a, it's like a bunch of slew of bars in one spot down like in South Philly in the sports complex. So for us in Philly, for those that don't know, again, all of our stadiums and arenas are like in the same vicinity. So we got the Wells Fargo Center, Lincoln Financial Field, Citizens Bank Park, all within like two blocks of each other and in the middle of all that is Xfinity Live and that's where people go to party pre and post game and of course they watch the games during the games but outside of that was Kate Smith's statue well last year <laughs> uh, that was until last year I to say when people found uh, a couple of songs of hers from the 30s that were kind of racist go figure people singing racist songs in the 1930s uh, one song was called that's why the darkies were born which had lyrics such as someone had to pick the cotton someone had to plant the corn someone had to slave and be able to sing that's why the darkies were born holy hell so apparently uh she sung that song in 1931 and another one was called picking any heaven in 1933 uh which asked colored children living in this is reading this from a cnn story colored children living in an orphanage to dream in a magical place of great big watermelons not great so eventually uh <laughs> the flyers the hockey team here which used her rendition of god bless america numerous times over the years as good luck eventually took down the statue so that statue you saw of kate smith on SummerSlam 1990 is not there anymore, and we don't know where it is. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, people were people were pissed about that too. I remember that. That was a big deal to some people that yeah. the statue's being taken down. They like, tried to uh, they tried to like justify it because they're like, oh, she was singing satire and everything like that, but that's nothing. Like, no, <laughs> it's it's there. You see it. Doesn't matter if it's satire or not. Get it out. Like, get the statue out. Get get her out of here. <laughs> yeah, get it out. So, uh, it's funny. the uh, The daughter of Jean Hart, Lauren Hart, has uh, 
you know, sung the song over the last couple of years, and um, it sung the anthem too. Uh, and she's she's good. So yeah, but we're not going to use Kate Smith anymore. <laughs> uh, they, they used to do the, the duet, and they would yeah. Lauren Hart would sing, and then they would play the Kate Smith's video, and they would sing together and stuff, and that got you know fans juiced up and everything. But you know, it, it's. I don't think it's as big, like so many, not so many, but there were Flyers fans that were like, oh, I'm never going to go to a game again or whatever. But, you know, that's all BS. You know they're going to be there. It's Of course. All they were there. Crap. They were there before the, the quarantine. They're watching now. If I can't, if you, that was really a reason to stop watching the Flyers, then you probably weren't that big of a fan. It's yeah. like the same people who that say. That and your priorities are way off base. That too. And... It's the same people that say, oh, if they knew I'm never watching again, it's like, all right, dude, whatever. But yeah. I don't think the Flyers had trouble selling tickets after they took the right. Warren Hart's, the, right. the Kate Smith statue down. Like, I think uh, Flyers sell out almost all of their games. <laughs> That's the thing. Even no matter when how they're, they're bad. Doing, Even when they're bad. Right. No matter how they're doing, they got, those seats are filled. And, t- and their tickets are expensive, too. Like, their tickets ain't cheap. Uh, but people, they, they spend that money, man, and they... They they go to the Flyers games. They got a very very loyal core fan base, and good for them. And like you said, no matter if they're good, they could be top in the tops in the East, like we are now. You know what I'm saying? You know, <laughs> no, you know, not no, don't mean don't mean to brag or anything, but we got the top seed in the East. You know what I'm saying? The Flyers are playing the Canadians tonight. Let me check the score real quick. Yeah, actually, one, no, one nothing. We're up one nothing. Exactly. Things are good, you know, for the Flyers. Things are good for the Orange and Black, you know. But even when things aren't good. Stands are packed, so no one really, you know, no one really cared that much about the Kate Smith statue taken down. But I, I did find that interesting. They mentioned Kate Smith before they sang uh, "God Bless America" at this show. It's a, definitely a nod to Philly and a tradition that that was a thing for a, a lot of years <laughs> here in Philly uh, before before Flyers games. Um, and the match itself wasn't much. It was just. <laughs> Duggan and Volkov beating the hell out of the Orient Express, much to everyone's delight. And yeah, yay, beat up the Asian guys, and that's it. <laughs> uh, I think the funniest part about this was Nikolai Volkov uh, flubbing the lines when he was trying to sing. He he, he missed <laughs> the, he missed the line, so he had to step back a little bit and wait for it to come like he was one line ahead of where he should have been so i just thought that was so funny. bad <laughs> it was so bad i'll have to put a video on twitter or something on our twitter of that just they flat out give got him an booed. idea <laughs> they flat out got booed bro ah, Philly. Uh, <laughs> they deserved to get booed they were terrible <laughs> they were horrible it was almost like they did a bad on purpose. That's how you know, bad they were. There's a reason why when people say, "Oh, you threw snowballs at Santa and you you you, you did this and you did that," uh, there's a reason why they don't say, "Oh, you booed Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Nikolai Volkov <laughs> for, for singing God Bless America." It's because everyone agreed with us. I'm gonna say that next time somebody brings that up, like we also <laughs> booed Nikolai Volkov and Jim Duggan while they sang God Bless America. Like, don't forget that. That happened too. That happened way more recent than the, the Santa thing. Let's see. Now I have to. Uh, Put, I'll put that on our Twitter so we have a video ready, readily available to send anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah that evidence dare, that dare uh, disagree. Yeah, we got video evidence of this actually happening. So, 
What a, what a time. Um, moving on to Dusty Rhodes and the Macho King, Randy Savage. Before the match, we get Ted DiBiase <laughs> on a little platform with Virgil. Well, can we reveals, wait, 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 wait. Even before that, before Macho Man came out, when Sean Mooney was interviewing him oh, backstage. Yes. <laughs> and he was on that like stepladder shaking like back and forth. I was like, you know what? Maybe I've been too hard on Sean Mooney because I'm not a big, yes, you have. As, as big a fan of him as you are. But, oh, my God, that was hilarious. You need to hey. stop with the – who's the other guy you love so much um, with the mullet? Who's the other backstage guy? Oh, snap. How do I – Todd Pettengill. Uh <laughs> You love Todd Pattengill With for whatever mullet. reason so much. Yeah, that's, that's supposed to be your guy, right? <laughs> he had a mullet that's for like, your guy. One, like two weeks. Come on. Okay. <laughs> your guy, Todd Pettengill. He's the man. He was okay. Uh, but Sean Mooney was the was a beast, bro. <laughs> Including this interview when he's standing on the steps and Macho Man's cutting the fi- another fire promo. Yep. And then when Macho Man pulls off with his with his homies, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Back to you, Vince. Whoa. <laughs> that was a highlight for me of this entire pay-per-view, man. It was great. I had to admit, get that in because that was hilarious. It was great. And then the, the camera how... the cameras panned out, first of all, when the interview starts and you see him shaking on the stepladder. And then it's just like him and Savage, like or just Savage with the microphone. And the camera pans back out when Savage leaves and you see him still shaking. And I'm just like cracking up. That's amazing. <laughs> also, Savage playing up to like, oh, so the rumors are true about Sapphire. Huh? And it's like, yeah. what rumors? Yeah. She doesn't want to be amongst the commoners. Huh? It's like, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought that whole segment was really funny. So, yeah, I agree. Sean Mooney, though, he deserves his 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 respect. He was great as a backstage interviewer. But back to Ted DiBiase, <laughs> who, in my opinion, is a timeless villain. He works yes. in any era, because no matter what era it is, it's all relative anyway, as far as money. But we all hate a super rich person who thinks he can buy everything, like that. <laughs> If it's the 30s, 40s, 50s, into today, we all hate that person. Like He's a timeless, timeless villain. And the perfect person to put him up against was Dusty. Because Dusty in WWF was the common man. And it was definitely some parallels to uh, Dusty and DiBiase between that feud and Dusty and Flair and NWA. The only thing is, is that WWF always does their content to... They dumbed down their content. So instead of Flair, you know, instead of Flair with the thousand dollar suits and the thousand dollar robes and the shoes and all that, and he's just very dapper. You got DiBiase in an ugly jumpsuit with a big dollar sign on the back. <laughs> this is how you know he's the rich person. <laughs> like he, he buys everything. Uh. Dusty Rose is a common man. When in NWA, he would just be cool. You know, he's wearing normal clothes. But in WWF, he's he's a trash man. He's a plumber. He's a common man. You're supposed to root for him. He's like you. It's like it's very straightforward, and he's wearing polka dots for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's very straightforward. That's very that's very WWE to kind of dumb it down and make it very overt and easily digestible, which I, I kind of understand. I guess from their standpoint, back in 1990, especially because there were a lot of kids watching, and that's got to make it yeah, easy for them to understand. That's what made it easy for me to follow things, and right. that's why I I I've really 
reached my limit, giving them the benefit of the doubt. But when they dumb it down now as an adult, I get it because that's kind of how I got roped into it. And I was able to understand things from pay-per-view to pay-per-view, TV to TV. Their audience today, though, is so old. It doesn't make sense now. You can't even justify it. I agree. Oh, the kids are their biggest audience. It's not. It's 50 plus. So you don't have to dumb it down anymore. No. And if anything, the kids are more sophisticated than what we were back then. They got Google. They got the internet now. Speaking of like, dumbing down, the Sixers are going to lose somehow. Stop it. Don't don't jinx them. The, Maybe it's a reverse jinx. No, well, they were up by like three, and then Toronto just like tied it, and then they just went ahead. So, Oh, whatever. come on. Yeah. God, I, uh, I don't need this bad news in my life right now. Don't do this to me. No, I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> I just – But It's ridiculous, but whatever. I'm just saying, kids now are very sophisticated – and, yes. and, and they, they could easily get to information much easier than they could when we were younger. Yeah. And we just had, we were just left to our imaginations and we needed that spoon feeding, so to speak, where. That's a great point. Kids don't necessarily need it that much nowadays. My daughter gets stuff, man. She's, she's kind of hip to a lot of things. Like, and if she's not, she'll ask me <laughs> like, yeah. and I'll tell her, but like, you know, that's, that's a different discussion for a different day. But <laughs> DiBiase uh, is out here to reveal that he bought Sapphire. He bought her services. He was the one, because leading into this, Sapphire was, was receiving all these lavish gifts. I wrote them down. Do you want to go through them? Go through them. All right, let me see. Oh, no, I I ripped it up. Hold on. Good Lord. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to list them, but the way Dusty Rose says them in the promo that he did was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, a diamond ring. A full-length mink coat, a diamond necklace, a cruise around the world, gold bracelet, and a new Cadillac. Ooh, a new Cadillac, because you know how much black people love those Cadillacs, boy, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's everything Ted DiBiase gave to her. And that's all it took. And a bag of money. Don't forget, oh, she yeah. literally secured yeah. the bag. <laughs> In the WWF bag that I used the to WWF have. WWF bag, of course, yes. I used to have that. <laughs> <laughs> Brought back a lot of memories. <laughs> yes. Of course, a WWF bag. She secured that bag and sold her services to Ted DiBiase. Now, I will say, the optics of Ted DiBiase just bl- buying a black woman... <laughs> Yeah. Not great. No. A white man buying a black woman, the optics there, not great. I understand why they did it though. Of course, this is Tid DiBiase. He is he buys everybody, says everybody has a price. But it just so happened two people he bought were both black, Virgil and Sapphire. Couldn't he couldn't he buy a white person? <laughs> Damn. Why couldn't he buy a white person? Well maybe he did. He bought IRS a couple years later. Oh, well, IRS yeah. is kind of into money too. He didn't really, I know. Did he really buy him? Uh, no, I don't think so. But either way, oh, the Sixers lost. What a Damn. villain! Yeah, yeah, they just absolutely terrible. They totally okay. coughed I'm, this up I'm without Embiid. They could have beat the Raptors uh, without but, Joel Embiid, so and they they just didn't. <sighs> Alright, well moving on from that. Disappointment. <laughs> uh so yeah, Macho Man, Dusty Rose Dusty Rhodes is by the way, is heartbroken. He can't believe this happened. He's just like this sweet sapphire lady belonged to me. 
that black woman belonged to me, not you. I, I digress. So he's distraught. He goes against Macho Man, but Macho Man uses the brick or something, a weapon that's in Sherry's purse, knocks him over the head with it, knocks him out, pins him, he wins, boom, that's it, they're out. Uh, but meanwhile, backstage, and I wrote this down, I love the way they actually shot this because Sean Mooney, it's all happening like in real time. It doesn't feel scripted. Right, right. It feels like it's spontaneous. Sean Mooney's waiting for Ted DiBiase. He's like, oh, he must be back in his private quarters, his private room. You know, I'm waiting for him. His limo just pulled up. I'm waiting. It's like he was an actual reporter trying to get an interview instead of having the, here's my guest at this yeah. time. Yeah, Ted DiBiase. Standing five feet from him. He's like, here's Ted DiBiase. And he just walks in into the frame. No, instead, he's like waiting for Ted DiBiase because DiBiase is doing other stuff. Like he's he's a human being looking to do stuff. And he comes out, he's trying to interview him. He talks like for two seconds as he's getting into the limo. It comes dusty. Like, it's just a lot of different things happening at once. And I just wish that WWE just got back to that. Like, it's just, it just felt a little more real, felt a little more spontaneous. And they don't do that. It's very scripted, very regimented, very rigid. And it just doesn't feel natural, and it's and I think the product has suffered as a result. I agree with everything you just laid out. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Well, the We're Sixers are going to play the Celtics in the first round of the playoffs, so there you go. All right. Stop bringing up the Sixers right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have the post game live on, and I'm just T- turn it uh, off. I, the I Flyers are playing. The Philly, right now. Phillies are losing two and. Flyers Man, we're trying to have up. a good time here yeah, on episode I'm, 247. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm good. The show is long to, enough. Try to be good. <laughs> Two plus hours. Yeah. So next up, we got Hulk Hogan against Earthquake. And the first half, what they called a double main event. Because you can't just leave it. Hogan out and not be a main event. Exactly. It's got to be a main event with Hogan in it, right? Precisely. Of course. But... This was a heavy angle. This was a big deal. So I will say that. Uh, big Boss Man was in Hogan's corner. Bravo was in Earthquake's corner. So the evens the odds there. Hulk Hogan was so damn oily during his promo. <laughs> he was glistening. He was like had a reflection. You could look in the mirror off his biceps. He was yep. so oiled up. He didn't need that much oil, bro. His skin was moisturized. He didn't have to lotion or put oil on for the next two weeks after that, bro. He was not ashy. <laughs> It's ridiculous. Oh, uh, man. Another thing I noticed, Big Boss Man had the Georgia State flag on his uniform. But at that point, the Georgia State flag still had the Confederate flag inside of it. Oh, hmm. wow. Hmm. Yeah. How about that? Uh, let's see. Hogan spit on Earthquake before the match. I saw that, and I noted that, too. Wow. That Bruh, dastardly that's heel. That's a heel move. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't matter if he almost took your life come on you can't spit on somebody no that's a heel move like that's straight disrespectful bro there wouldn't have been a match at that point like bro did you just spit on me i don't care if we are wrestling and this is acting like i'm beating your ass right now and you're supposed to be the good guy that's flat out disrespectful fam unbelievable good guys do don't spit on people that's 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 i don't know that's just straight disrespectful it calls for an automatic ass whooping every time like he does he did it a lot by the way and not this is like i noticed it here but um in wcw type matches even before he turned heel he would like spit on the guys he was facing when they were like laying on the mat he would do it to flair did it to, like brutus 
I don't know what the hell is wrong with him. Maybe he was a heel the entire his entire. He was. <laughs> he was. He's a trash human being in, in wrestling and in real life. How about that? Um, You're not wrong. Also, Hulk Hogan's theme song, though. I got to give it to him. His theme song was fire. Yeah. Real American was a great yeah. song. Uh, I was bobbing my head, tapping my foot to that song, too. Yeah, and people were going crazy. But I feel like it's just I can't help it because we're in 2020 and we're in this pandemic. I can't help but feel like the people who don't want to wear masks and they're like fighting for their rights, quote unquote. This is a song that's playing in their head when they're thinking about that. Like, I have rights. I don't want to wear this mask. It's infringing on my unalienable Mm. rights as an American. And just I just feel like they're like they heard this song and they're like, this is what I got to do. Like, I can't let it slide. <laughs> I'm a real American. Fight for white. Fight for what's right for every man, including not wearing a mask. So I kind of look at that song. Well, I, I even look at uh, <laughs> the Paul McCartney song "Freedom" that came out after 9/11. This says a lot of how, the lyrics have a lot of the same uh, type of message. I don't recall that song. And it's, Paul McCartney's from the UK, right? <laughs> Yeah, so okay, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'll send you the links. Uh, but you I'm probably have it. heard it. It was like big back then, but I'm not I just remember the again. lyrics. The lyrics are just uh, don't, that, don't. that's also like what you just described about Hulk Hogan's theme music. That's what I think about like uh, those types of songs, especially after nine eleven or all those patriotic songs. Yeah, <laughs> kind of some of them very much out of place. <laughs> it sound weird. But um, all right. Big boss man jumps in the ring, starts beating people up. Ref doesn't stop anything. Dino Bravo. <laughs> Who was involved. the ref? Who was the ref? Oh boy. <laughs> Did you notice? It was Baby Earl. It was. Just saying. Go ahead. Who got his shirt torn at some point? When the hell did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I think it was at the very end because, uh, I don't notice it at any point until the very end, and I didn't re- rewind so. Maybe it was Jimmy Hart or something, or like Dino Bravo. Had to be a heel, right? Hulk Hogan wouldn't do that. He would spit on you, but he wouldn't rip your shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. That's, nah, that's just that's just horrible. No, he wouldn't do that. Um, yeah, I, I just missed it. I was like, what? Why does his shirt torn up like that? <laughs> yeah. Like I looked up and his shirt was all torn up, like he had been to Jurassic Park or something. <laughs> I, I didn't get that. Uh, Hogan, by the way, tapped out during the match to the Boston Crab. He should have lost. <laughs> I guess, I miss, I guess I they didn't have tap outs back then. Oh, no. They didn't well, have tap outs back then, but Hogan no. tapped out like four or five times during that Boston crap. Did you notice that? I did not, no. You didn't notice it? How? He was in the no, Boston crap for like a couple minutes, and he clearly <laughs> tapped the mat like four times. He said, I just, couple, <laughs> like, couple it just happened. Oh, that was a rest was move. Like, That's what that was. Right, it, it was like they like again they didn't have people tapping out back then, so they didn't it didn't matter. But he was like banging in the mat in pain. But today he'd be tapping out like he's he's out. Get him out of here. He lost. Earthquake wins. But you know yeah. they didn't have that back then. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, who who who, who was in charge of making that call? Uh, I don't know. Mr. The Man, referee, guess, right? The referee, oh, right? Oh, here you go. Oh, again. <laughs> Leave that man alone. He has a family. <laughs> he has were, a family. Who, with much better referees than his family. 
All right, I'm just gonna move on <laughs> to my next point here, and that uh, Hulk Hogan hulked up after eating two earthquake finishers like it was nothing. Just hulked up on his ass. He kicked and just he kicked out finishers. like it was nothing. Right. It just. He he ate the spinach, but we didn't see when he ate the spinach. He just got up and it was like, <laughs> boom, I'm here now. And that was it. He slammed Earthquake and beat him, right? Did he beat, Did he pin him? No, he didn't pin him after that. Of course not. He just pinned him and he, he slammed him and he rolled. No, he slammed him at some point. Then he slammed him on top of a table. Yeah, yeah. a randomly <laughs> didn't go set through table. The table. <laughs> right. <laughs> didn't go through the table, just land on top of it and slid off. <laughs> yeah. And then Earthquake got counted out. And I was you like, did. what? People will be pissed that that was a finish today. Yeah. It will be irate. Uh, Hogan jumping up and down, celebrating the win because he got right. in people at be, the nine. <laughs> people will be clowning Hogan all day long. And yet people in the crowd were going crazy. Yay, Hogan won. And that's all that matters. Hogan wins. Big boss man swinging a stool <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> and then Hulk Hogan must pose. That's it. <laughs> And everybody's happy. Big boss man's telling them, "Hey, you got to pose, man. You got to pose." <laughs> I will say that does. was it was an intense after the match with Quake coming in and choking Hogan, and then eating those shots from the big boss man. He saw those welts on his back, and that was like intense. And he, I think he hit him three times, and then finally, Earthquake lets Hogan go, and you could tell he's like looking at boss man, like, "Damn, that freaking hurt, you bastard!" And you could just <laughs> right. tell how much pain he's in and it's just hilarious great yeah, it looked great, po- great post match i was a fan of it yeah but uh the, the finish wasn't great i mean i, I did write, they didn't want to beat earthquake yet but yeah and i did write yeah. earl hebner strikes again um yeah so well whatever <laughs> you know what, what i thought was funny during this match uh earthquake you know hit his finish or whatever and once Hogan, I, I guess Vince was not even looking at the monitor or anything. And as soon as he kicked out, Roddy Piper goes, he kicked out. And Vince McMahon goes, he what? <laughs> like he wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> wasn't paying attention, Vince. You're I the just, play-ball play. I, on, I noted that because I cracked up. Like I could just imagine Vince like with his head down after the after Quake splashes him. And then Roddy Piper going, he kicked out. And Vince uh, making his head up, picking his head up and going, he what? Speaking of Vince, he was so happy when Hulk Hogan was posing. Like, <laughs> unnecessarily happy. He's, ha ha! Look at him go! Ha ha! Look at those biceps! Look at those biceps! So vascular! <laughs> oh, look, listen to the crowd! So, so wild. That's such a wild time. Surprised and he Hogan didn't, posed for pr- like. Hogan posed for like 10 minutes He did. He did. He really did. (laughs) They played his song like three times, and he's still in there like, "Ah, let's go. Yeah. I'm Hogan, baby. Woo. Man, I wish I I remember that uh, because, you know, being in the audience, apparently. I keep saying apparently because sometimes I really don't know if I was, and I'm being lied to, but why would anyone lie to me? Um, I don't remember, you know, the posing and everything like that for that long, you know, but maybe it was even longer than that. Because, you know, they had the backstage <laughs> stuff going on, so. That's true. It could have been for like 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when they set up the steel cage, that was long as hell, so. It was. Who knows? I mean, they, well, f- before we get to the steel cage, I got 
a second. I got some stuff about that. Mm-hmm. For one, Roddy Piper was hating all over uh, <laughs> Hulk Hogan for winning that match. <laughs> he shouldn't be celebrating the win. He sucks. And guess what? He was right. Well, I mean, even though he was a babyface, he still had that, you know, animosity with Hogan for a bit. That's true, so too. So it did make sense. Because he was still a baby. Fa- he was a baby face at that point. Yeah. So he was. it was weird, like hearing him throughout commentary throughout the night, you know, saying some weird things that were could be looked at as pro heel and anti baby face, but nothing flat out, you know, like this guy sucks or whatever. But it was very weird listening to him on commentary. Yeah. Very weird when uh, before Sapphire, when, when he was saying, uh, they was waiting for Sapphire to come out and said she's making pancakes back there, probably. Like, Not I, great. Oh, no, no. Not great. Probably making pancakes back there. It's like, oh, she's Auntie Mama now, too. She's not just Sapphire. She's also Auntie Mama. Good, 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 good. Um, also, Bobby Heenan for the main event. Outfit change, which reminded me yeah. that managers used to dress like their charges back in the day. I remember... I think it was WrestleMania, one of these early WrestleManias where Jimmy Hart managed like three or four different acts. Yeah, yeah. And he had a different jacket for each act, yep. whether it was like Natural Disasters, Money Inc., or whoever. I was like, man, that was a cool thing that people used to, like managers used to, used to do. For one, they used to be managers. And for two, they used to kind of look like their people they were managing. So, yeah. I thought that was cool. Very often so overlooked, just, uh, you know, for me back then. I, I didn't appreciate it the way I do now. I appreciate it. it it's little little things that, very much. you know, th- adds to the act that I appreciate from Bobby Heenan and others as well. Uh, more promos before this uh, cage match because they're setting up the cage so we got to get some promos out there. Uh, Dusty Rose is back there. He's damn near in tears about Sapphire. But I tell you what. He cut a hell of a promo, boy. Like Dusty Rose could talk, man. Yep. Like that man can talk. <laughs> and he was he killed it on this this night as well. Uh Lord Alfred Hayes was out there giving insight into the construction of the steel cage. And they're talking about they're trying to beat a new record and all this and that. I thought that was pretty dope. He's giving like different stats and stuff like that about the cage and how much it weighed and how many pieces it was. I like I like that little touch. Made it feel like, you know, this reminded you of how dangerous and, and heavy the cage is and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, they can't do it before every cage match because they have like four or five of them a year now. But if you do it once a year, I think, it's, I think it was a nice touch. Yeah, and he was talking about uh, it was like 350 pounds per section. There were eight sections and just going through that. And I remember fast forwarding through this crap on my VHS because I did not care about Lord Alfred Hayes back then or what the hell he was talking about because sometimes he was like a heel and then other times he kind of played like a, a babyface role on commentary. And uh, you remember what they said, how many pounds this steel cage was altogether? I do not recall. 3,000. Damn. 3,000 pounds for those eight sections. Crazy. That is crazy. And again, I like those insights uh, that they gave into yeah. the case. So, very, very cool. Yeah. Oh, that was a nice little touch there. Uh, earthquake still rumbling in his 
promo after he lost. Still, he's angry and sweaty, and he's still rumbling. Though he still got the rumble going. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> uh, but now it's time for the Ultimate Warriors promo, which starts off with a snort for some reason, then a horrible Liberty Bell joke. Amazing! What the hell, man? Amazing! I wrote it down word for word. Did you? I did not. Please enlighten me. <laughs> All right, hold on. Uh, uh, did you see where? Oh, okay, so it was before the Rick Rude promo. Talk about Rocky Balboa, <laughs> and here I am. Thinking, I did see that. Thinking I'm I like, I'm four years old, thinking it's a real thing. It. Like, I didn't, I didn't find anything memorable from it other than uh, Bobby Heenan's wardrobe change. <laughs> yeah. It just cracked me up because I'm sitting here like. Rocky Balboa is a real person because Rick Rude talked about him, not realizing he's a fictional <laughs> character. And Rick Rude's saying, like, they could put a statue of me next to the one of Rocky Balboa. And I'm like, okay. But uh, crack me up. The, talk about the Warriors promo and that joke. Me and Gene Okerlund, <laughs> Warrior goes, do you know what Rick Rude and Bobby Heenan have in common with the Liberty Bell? Well, no. One is cracked. And the other is a ding dong. And then they laugh for about two seconds. And then they stop. Trash. <laughs> Which one's cracked? Trash. Trash. <laughs> that joke was cracked. <laughs> oh, trash. Warrior. It's trash. That promo, also trash. What the hell was he talking about? Yeah, I People totally, loved him, though. He, he just talked about sacrifices and warriors and power <laughs> and every single promo. Like, sacrifices. Every promo. So, whatever. <laughs> he made his own religion in every promo. Like, what the hell? He's sacrificing goats and shit. <laughs> the, the, a, lot, a lot of the things I paid attention to weren't necessarily the words. You know, I'm four years old. And if you're using words like sacrifice and stuff, I don't know what the hell that means. So, I'm just, like, paying attention to his... Uh, bicep tassels and the different colors and the the, the <laughs> title belt and it's a different color you know yes and uh, you know, his face paint and stuff like that that's the stuff I'm paying attention to that I think looks cool um, yeah. it's different you know it's some like wrestling that's why I fell in love with it so much there was so much differentness about it like face paint and like the tights the bicep tassels like the boots like everything just made just looked so different and to me it looked cool so i was just like it looked cool i don't know i don't know what else to say and this is the those are the types of things i paid attention to especially during warrior promos because i could not follow his, him at all yeah well you mentioned the belt and he had what color was that like purple is that a purple strap uh or was blue? it the light blue one i think it was light I, blue I don't one, i don't remember but he did I'm, definitely had a purple one I gotta admit, sometimes I get purple and blue mixed up. Sometimes I think it's a color blindness thing that I have. So bear with me, but I liked it yeah. <laughs> regardless. Yeah. And one thing I liked about Warrior is that he always had different color straps for whatever reason. He had like yeah. a yellow strap, like I said, he had a purple one. I thought that was a cool touch. That he he was such a colorful character. He mm. had d colorful straps too. So I wish they would do that more. I don't know. I mean. They probably could do that more with different guys where they can customize it based off of their color scheme, maybe. They've right. done that here and there. Like, Bray Wyatt has his own belt when he, you know, that fiend, ugly fiend belt. Uh, he's got <laughs> Daniel Bryan had the hemp belt, which I thought was pretty dope. Yeah, that was cool. 
Um, and Naomi had like the glow belt. Yeah. Uh, which was really cool. Um, so yeah, they can, you know, besides the custom side place, I think WWE might be able to do something with the straps too. And like, you know, instead of just making this universal title blue when it's on SmackDown, maybe you can, you know, tweak it a little bit when, depending on who has the belt. So, uh, and then the problem they run into is they'll use all the same colors because they're so bland. They have no imagination. Like, can you imagine a world title belt being purple in 2020? Like, they're not. If it I fit, just don't think they have the uh, creative ability to make that happen. But I would if love it fit to see the character. It. I would like to see it. Why not? Um, the main event. Let's talk about the main event for a little bit. Ultimate Warrior versus Rick Rude for the WWE Championship inside of a steel cage. Inside that blue bar steel cage, which always looks super duper painful. <laughs> like, WWE kept yeah. that cage for a long time. It was stiff. <laughs> and it looked like it hurt like hell every single time somebody got thrown into it. I'm glad for the wrestlers they took it away because I'm sure they hated that cage. Um, so I know it's like a, a it's nostalgic cage because that reminds people of the late eighties, early nineties, but it just looked hella painful. One thing I did not like though, and I still I've, I've never liked, was the escape rule in the cage. <laughs> that is the worst. It makes cage matches so much more trash and they have to be like i just i just hate it i wish wwe would get rid of it no escape the cage rules it's just it's trash rule they don't have to continue it you don't yeah, have any thoughts I mean, on this uh, this is the first ever you know cage match i watched you know it's the everything the only thing that's ever made sense to me is like when i first watch it so to me it always was just like okay escape the cage makes sense for a heel but, the, you know, the Warrior escaped this time and won that way. And it is what it is. Uh, but, I, you know, the more I grew, the more uh, wrestling I've watched, I think a good blood feud are the only types of feuds that belong in a steel cage. And then you have a, put a referee in there, pinfall or submission. You know, that's the type of story I like to see. So, you know, I kind of – I don't think I'm as passionate about it as you because um, I don't really mind the escape the rule, but uh, my preference would be because you can have really creative finishes with the escape the rule. We've seen that, you know, even recently in NXT, where uh, I think the someone got hit who was over top of somebody and just fell over top of her, and she was winner, and it, it went into another storyline. I, I think it has a place uh, in terms of stories, but. The fact that that has to be in a steel cage match and it can't be like in another kind of match, you know, kind of defeats the purpose of the steel cage. Like, just lock two people in there, or even if it's a tag team, lock the four people in there, win by pinfall or submission. It makes the best story for me. I hate it. I hate <laughs> the escape rule. I honestly hate it. They've used it in some creative ways at times in the past. Uh, specifically with the Steve Austin Vince McMahon cage match, that's how you know they threw big uh, Big Show threw him out of the cage or threw him into the cage and it opened up and that's how Steve Austin hit the floor and he won. Right. So it's kind of creative, but honestly the rule stinks. I just I'm <laughs> not a fan of it. 
what, what I am a fan of is Rick Rude and his pre-match promos where he would call the fans, like he would alliterate the fans and what do we yeah. call them. So in this instance, <laughs> he called them Pennsylvania piss ants, which I found like that's pretty funny. But the, the messed up part was that they had the camera on a guy <laughs> who was pretty much what he was talking about. Like, yeah. well, this is a Pennsylvania yeah. piss ant fat guy right here. Like, damn, that's not right. <laughs> they didn't have to do that. Uh, I remember that all too well. Oh, Just that watching that and being like, does that guy know him or whatever? Like, why do they have the camera no. on that guy specifically? They, spe- <laughs> they specifically found a guy who they thought fit Rick Rude's description. <laughs> And they just zeroed in on that guy <laughs> and left it there. I mean, you know what? They probably found him three hours prior to that. <laughs> They're yeah, like, this oh, is the guy. guy. We're gonna... Hopefully he's there, not in the concession stand. When right, there's that guy out. right there. Oh, yeah, we got him. <laughs> Boom, we got him. Um, and the last thing I had here was that Bobby Heenan had a big sell from Warrior when he punched him at some point in the match. <laughs> and... Eventually, the Ultimate Warrior won, and he pretended to swivel his hips like, or gyrate, I should say, like uh, Rick Rude, and that was the end of the show. Yeah, I did uh, get a little laugh out of when the Ultimate Warrior came out, and he climbed out the cage and started shaking it, and I was like, what if that cage comes apart now, <laughs> like, when he's shaking it? Um, but, I, you know, they must have built it really well. I'm sure that... Hopefully, I would think they rehearsed that uh, to make sure the cage could withstand that. But you know, it looked uh, like a really cool visual, him shaking the cage. I actually thought that was actually pretty cool uh, to see that because, you know, he would always shake the ropes. But now he's going to shake the cage before he gets in there because, you know, he's a shaker. So, you know, him coming in and then him climbing the cage to get in instead of going through the door. I thought it was all stuff that made me gravitate towards the ultimate warrior and he was the only he was the first champion i knew you know because i that was my first event even though i watched wrestlemania 6 main event you know like when i got into wrestling ultimate warrior was the champion so like that was my champ i thought like you know this guy is the only champion i've ever known so i liked everything he did at that point uh so maybe that's why i kind of have like a soft spot for this particular pay-per-view and everything that he did because i cracked up when he you know, they did the tug of war with Rick Rude, Bobby Heenan on the outside and Ultimate Warrior on, on his feet on the inside. And then he grabbed his tights and exposed his ass. Like, I just cracked up because I remember all this. And it just, I, I laughed, man. It was, maybe I shouldn't laugh in a steel cage match, but it just cracked me up. And everything Rick Rude did, uh, just trying to make Warrior look good, I thought. And he did. Yeah, he did. And it is a good story going into the match because... Yeah, because he beat him before. And I I remember being confused when Bobby Heenan said, he's beat you before and he'll beat you again. And I'm like, wait. Is that WrestleMania, right? (laughs) Uh, I think it was a previous previous SummerSlam, I think. Or maybe it was WrestleMania. I thought it was WrestleMania when he like Heenan held Warrior's feet. Right. And uh, and that's when Rick Rude had long hair. And I remember... To me, this is the first time I saw Rick Rude with short hair. So whenever I would see highlights of him with the long hair, I'd be like, who the hell is that? Like, that's not the same guy. (laughs) I always thought, like, you had to have the same exact hair your whole life. And I realized haircuts were a thing, really. So uh, at least in in terms of that long versus that short. But, yeah, I remember being like, wait, this guy never beat the Ultimate Warrior, Ultimate Warrior's champion. Like, what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) I beat him him at WrestleMania 5 with the Intercontinental Championship. 
And yeah, cause I remember like he had him up, and then Warrior fell back with Rude on top yeah. of him, and, and uh, yeah. what's the name? Uh, Heenan held his feet down, and that's yep. how he lost. Yep. So they brought that in, and you know, so I guess it made the sense Warrior got it back as a threat. Uh, the next that SummerSlam '88 or '89, maybe, since he had the title going into WrestleMania mm. six, so. Maybe. But uh, on that note, that's SummerSlam 1990. That's the whole show. So before we wrap it up here, any closing thoughts about SummerSlam 1990, 30 years ago? The nostalgia is real for me. (laughs) My first VHS, uh, you know, I remember I was looking for anything uh, any signs in the audience or like any any Philly connections and really we mentioned them uh, nothing nothing more than you know what I thought would be uh, they talked about you know Rocky Balboa and the Liberty Bell stuff like that a lot but I, I like putting an emphasis on the city you're in you know especially back then uh, I didn't even know I was in Philly at that point I didn't know where I lived I didn't like people weren't like you live in philadelphia i didn't know my address you know i'm four years old i just don't remember that i was probably five or six when i finally realized like things about myself (laughs) so um you know looking back at this and you know i was literally 20 minutes away from the spectrum and uh well not obviously i was there at SummerSlam, but i lived 20 minutes away from the spectrum so even if I wasn't there, I just wonder kind of like how it would have been. And, uh, yeah, very, very cool. My first ever show. And, uh, you know, the, a lot of different things, like I, I know a lot more now than obviously I did then. I know more about wrestling. I know more about the business. I know, you know, what happens in the future. Uh, cause I, I taped all these pay-per-views and I remember watching like the Royal Rumble 91 for a while, and then I would watch SummerSlam 90 and be confused. I'd be like, wait, why is Ultimate Warrior Champion? And I was like, oh, yeah, because this happened before the Royal Rumble and stuff like that. So, like, just little things like that came back and uh, and just enjoyed reliving uh, a nice part of my childhood. Well, that's dope, man. That was dope. And it was a, it was fun. It was fun to watch this. I uh, see a couple good matches, specifically the, uh, the tag team title match, yeah, yeah. and the main event was good as well. I thought both of those matches were good. Nothing too, uh, nothing too uh, long. You know, a lot of short matches too. Yeah, the sh- you know, this podcast has been very long though. <laughs> I was yeah. talking about this show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and on that note, we shall wrap it up with some plugs, please, Nick. Definitely a classic episode. So we hope you have enjoyed it. And you can follow us at Shooters Radio on Twitter. Follow me at Nick Pacone on Twitter. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Shooters Radio. And you can also get this podcast because I will be sure to send it this week because I didn't last week. But find this podcast and all our other podcasts at phillyinfluencer.com, phillyvoice.com. Maybe not all our other ones, but the ones that I post, you will be able to find there. There you go. I am at Vaughn M. Johnson. You can typically find me there. I probably won't be out here in these streets too much because, of course, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, You can find us wherever podcasts are available, including ShootersRadio.com, where you can find a bunch of our past episodes. 
We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash shootersradio, where we got some exclusive content for the small fee of $1.99, including our recent Wing Bowl retrospective episode or deep dive, whatever you want to call it. We talked all things Wing Bowl with our good brother Tommy Rowan from the Philadelphia Inquirer. We dug deep into that, gave some thoughts, some memories, the good, the bad, and everything in between about the very, very Philadelphia event known as Wing Bowl. So if you're from Philly and you want to relive some past memories about Wing Bowl, check it out. If you're not from Philly, you want to learn something about an event that happened here in Philly over the course of 25 years, check it out over at patreon.com slash shooters radio also check me out my writing because i still be out here writing you know what i'm saying i'm doing doing the writing thing doing the writing hustle you know what i'm saying philadelphiaeagles.com check me out i got some stories i got a bunch of stories on there in the last couple weeks check me out on there as well but until next week i'm vaughn johnson for nipicone thanks for listening to episode 247 of the straight shooters and we'll catch y'all again next week peace